this time introduce it properly, like not the kind of donkey podcast. We have we have a name. <laughs> Welcome to the Kind Podcast. Do what? Welcome to the Kind Jackass Podcast. Well, there's some Republicans here. That, that is true, actually. You know, I like a lot of qualities of Andrew Jackson, so we're good. <laughs> Call me a jackass. Andrew Jackson is great. Uh, anyway. His monetary say. policy was, is sublime. Anyway, and, the, and then it put the country in a huge depression. Sure. Oh, no welcome to the Fairly Political Podcast. Um, we have Paul from Indiana. We have Brett from California, and we also have Philip from California, and we also have Marco from California. We also have I'm me California. from California. Oh shit, Brett's from Washington. How dare you? No, God damn it. Brett, you're from California. I don't care where you think you're from. You are now from California. West Coast is the West Coast. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Continue. Continue with the introduction. Have we we mentioned that the most liberal person on this podcast so far seems to be the guy from Indiana? (laughs) All the Californians are somewhat conservative. I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm kind of like a Kennedy Democrat, I guess. Um, in that, how do you say? Like, you want to have affairs in the White House? He's a ladies' man. I mean, no. Being a Kennedy Democrat doesn't mean that you want to sleep with every single famous woman, and some not. Is this recording? Maybe that makes you a Clinton Democrat. Uh, if you look at all the people who are really good at boning in the White House, that was Democrats. Like was Democrats. Um, did you you ever hear the stories about uh, Lyndon Johnson? Oh yeah, Lyndon Johnson was quite the skilled boner. Yeah, like one of his famous quotes is, "I have boned more women on accident." Than John F. Kennedy boned on purpose. Man, that's sitting a uh, high bar too. Yeah, well, unlike Bill Clinton, unlike Bill Clinton, the women of all, every other president got the job done. If you know what I'm saying. Oh. My, my question is, how do you accidentally bone someone? You just slip and fall into them. Well, see, today we would call it rape, but you know, <laughs> in the '60s, I guess. Just so progressive. That's called alternative sex. Yeah. <laughs> this is going down a dark path. Are you Conway recording, Paul Conway? Yeah, this is recording. This is going to be in there. Very Like, there's this Vox special that I watched, which is how Kellyanne Conway met. Is why Kellyanne Conway is so frustrating to interview. Because she can't speak the truth to save her life? Not even she can't speak to speak the truth to she save her life. But her. she answers questions that aren't even asked. Oh, like yeah, she goes yeah. to a different tangent and happens to use like one or two words. Like now I'm just kind of curious. Like what would happen if in our debate team we debated like Kellyanne Conway? Oh man. It's it's like it, you're right. You I remember seeing that. White House. 
Like, we would get the four, like, so fast. What do you do in actual debates when we get the four? I mean, that is fair. <laughs> I've gotten a fair number of fours. But we were in freaking national, not national. We were in, where were we again? Western Washington. Like, we were against some pretty damn good teams. Is a four uh, good or bad? It's What's bad. the worst. Oh, well, then. How does the scale work? It's one to four. Oh, okay. It's British like Parliament. There's, essentially the speaking, you go, the worse it is. opposition and proposition. So proposition is opening proposition and closing proposition. Opposition is opening opposition and closing opposition. And then out of them, each one gets a rank. Okay. okay. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, I want to touch on uh, something from the last episode here. Uh, that we talked about, we got into talking about countries that uh, ban gay marriage and uh, oh, ban homosexuality like in general. So I, I did the I did the research. So one of the things I mentioned was that uh, homosexuality was not banned in Indonesia. And while that is true, I will mea culpa slightly in that there are two provinces where homosexuality is illegal in Indonesia. Uh, the provinces of Aceh and I forget what the name of the other one is, but essentially, uh, nationally it is legal and it has been for a while. However, uh, these two provinces due to a range of circumstances are actually, uh, they self govern themselves to a certain extent. And Aceh actually has, uh, some form of Sharia law as their official provincial law oh south sumatra is the other one so while it's still legal in the country as a whole those two provinces are illegal now i so i brought it up the 77 countries there are 77 countries where it's still illegal they are mostly centered in africa and asia Um, although one thing i found interesting was all of the country or most of the countries in oceania also uh it's illegal and that includes all Christian majority countries like Samoa, Solomon Islands, Tonga, Papua New Guinea, Tuvalu, uh, the Cook Islands. Uh, there are also several Latin American countries where it's illegal, also mostly Christian, including, which I did not know this, Barbados, uh, Grenada, uh, Guyana, Jamaica, Antigua and Barbuda, uh, St. Lucia, Trinidad and Tobago. And in fact, the most direct correlation over half of the countries where it is illegal were former British colonies, and their laws are based on British penal code at the time, which was which banned essentially uh, homosexual sex among men. So, but also full disclosure, there are ten countries where gay sex is punishable by death, uh, and those include. All Muslim majority countries except for Somalia. So it's Iran, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Yemen, Nigeria, Somalia, Afghanistan, Mauritania, Pakistan, Qatar, Iraq, and then obviously ISIS. And Brunei. Qatar is just kind of awful. Yeah. Brunei just added it, the death penalty for it, but they haven't actually done anything with it. Um, UAE is the same. And to be fair, uh, Afghanistan, Mauritania, Pakistan, Qatar, it's technically 
punishable by death, but there's been no executions ever committed. Um, Nigeria and Somalia, it's also punishable by death, but there's no verified executions. And Sudan and Yemen, there are laws on the books, but there's no recent executions. So that leaves Iran and Saudi Arabia are the only countries where there are known executions still happening. So then you're arguing that killing gays is cultural rather than religious. Uh, well, yes. Well, it, more that it's geographic. It tends to be places where there's still former colonial places that still haven't joined the developed world in general. In fact, there are places, for example... So there's an interesting story out there about um, Africa uh, and many countries are actually... So like Uganda, for example... Is actually going backwards. Homosexuality used to be illegal, and then they made it illegal in 2014 at the behest of extreme Christians, and that Christians ha are losing the battle against gay marriage and, and homosexuality in Europe, and so they're pushing it in Africa now. And you're well, seeing a lot in countries like Uganda and Zimbabwe and stuff like that. You're going to be kidding me. Well, the, the America, Americans in Western Europe... American and Western European Christians have been losing that battle for several decades now. Sure. The acceptance of gays is much more explanation or more open as a society. That same change will be a lot harder to enact in places where it is illegal, especially in the country that you named off where it is technically punishable by death because gay marriage is only one of the aspects uh, that is forbidden in a, among a long list of things deemed uh, contrary to a, a religious doctrine. Sure. Well, it, but I also want to point out too, that just like there are those countries, only two of the 10 countries where it's punishable by death have actual verified executions. So while in the 2003 Supreme court, so in the United States, there are still sodomy laws on the book in 13 states. Alabama, Florida, Idaho, Kansas, Louisiana, Michigan, Mississippi, North Carolina, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Texas, Utah, and Virginia. And several of those states actually specifically call out homosexual sex between two people of the same sex as being illegal. All right. Now, the Supreme Court ruled that unconstitutional in 2003, but they're still technically on the books in those states. So based on your extensive research, do you think that homosexuality is more of a problem in Christianity or in Islam? Well, I think it's bigger problem in, I think it's the biggest problem in Africa and Asia. And I think that it's mainly, I think we, if certainly, what's the best way to say this? Certainly, the Middle East and Northern Africa have huge problems with it, and those are predominantly Muslim countries. And and I do think it's a fair argument to say that, for what a variety of reasons, you know, people often talk about how Islam hasn't had a, you know, the Sam Harris Bill Maher argument is that Islam hasn't had its awakening yet in the same way that Christianity had. And I think, right. and I think. I think there's a, a fairness, but I don't think it has to do as much with the religion as it has to do with the geography. I think there's still, you know, there is a direct correlation between income per capita or GDP per capita and percent of the population that is, that claims that se selects non-believers. So as the GDP per capita increases, 
the percentage of the population that identifies as religious decreases. There's only one extreme outlier to that, and that's the United States. But if you go through most of Western Europe, there is a very, it's, you know, there's a very clear correlation. And so I think the fact that these countries are poor, and I think that has probably more to do with it than I mean, necessarily religion. There's another outlier, which is Malaysia. And they have um, homosexual acts outlawed under their sodomy laws. And their GDP's right. per capita is 10K. That's pretty decent for... Uh, well, not really. I mean, the United States is like 70, so... Really? Yeah. The United States is highest. It's, I think it's either... It's it's sixty or it's probably around sixty or something I think. Oh, it's fifty k. All right, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so I just wanted to point out that again, mea culpa a bit in the provinces of Aceh and South Sumatra and in Indonesia, homosexuality is illegal recently. Like Aceh just okay. did it in two thousand ten. But you can't deny that, like. Islam plays like some role in like why people discriminate against gays, right? No, I've never denied. I, I've never denied that religion plays a role. I, again, I think it's religion. well, Islam and, specifically, like the Quran, like says gay people deserve to die. I mean, well, so does the Bible. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but Christ, Christians in, in most Christian countries, uh, though the acceptance may not be there, say as. Uh, in the United States or in Western Europe, uh, the possibility of gay people actually being imprisoned for long periods of time or worse, executed, is substantially lower than the possibility of punishment that they might receive in an Islamic country. I agree. The thing, the Bill Maher argument well, about okay. how. Sorry, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. So the Bill Maher argument about how. Christianity experienced the Reformation. I support that very much because uh, you're right. The Bible does uh, condemn homosexuality as a sin and ask for, ask for people to literally be killed. However, who is in the Old Testament? Okay, in the Old Testament, I I know nothing about the Bible, so don't expect me to point at specific examples there. But anyway, it is hard to find in the Christian world now people who are willing to kill homosexuals and or people who are in a powerful enough political position to enforce even more st more restrictive legislation on their civil liberties. Whereas in the Muslim world, because there hasn't been that reformation and where voice, more moderate voices cannot speak out, the same treatment remains uh, mainstream. I mean, something that I would definitely like to say is one thing that I guess I can kind of, I don't know, appreciate about these Islamic extremists is that they actually follow the Quran to the very uh, letter. Yeah, but like, that's, yeah, that's probably, that's like, problematic. If you look at, like, Christian extremists, like, there's portions in the Bible where it's like, it's not okay to wear two fabrics together. It's not okay to wear, you know, work on Sundays. It's not okay to, uh, what's it called, plant two crops next to each other. And yeah, all those, those, other are, those are laws written for Jews. Yeah, so like this is this for is Gentiles. this is the discussion that I've had with. I, I, I work with a guy who's incredibly religious, and he's 
I have discussions with him and debates with him a lot. And yes, that's the argument that he makes that the parts of Leviticus that talk about, for example, don't eat shellfish, don't wear two different types of fabric, blah, blah, blah. Those were, those were Jewish versions of Sharia. Like, because Sharia is, goes a lot deeper than just like, oh, gay people don't have gay sex and stuff like that. Sharia goes into stuff like you can't have interest rates on loans. Right, like Sharia is really the reason people talk about it, making it laws for government is because Sharia really is set up to be like a government set of laws. The Leviticus also is similar to that in that a lot of the things that are set forth in Leviticus were things that were laws for Hebrews at the time to live by, and so the modern Christian argument is that those different things like don't eat shellfish don't apply to Christians because they were specific to Hebrews at the time. So. I mean, and, yeah. And so Jesus like Leviticus broke isn't? a shit ton of the laws. And no, whenever so, like the Jewish authorities like um, challenged him on it, he just said that I would, I am there to uh, fulfill the law, not to break it. So the argument is that Leviticus actually does delineate. Now I haven't read enough into it. Um, but the argument is that Leviticus does actually make a delineation between things that are universal and things that are. I, I, Leviticus is Old Testament, so obviously even not even if there's that delineation, there no Christ at that time. But yeah, even if there's that delineation, it wouldn't apply to Christians at all, right? Because, because it Old Testament. Yeah. But then you get into the whole moral dilemma of the fact that the New Testament and the Old Testament contradict each other consistently and yet people still like to point to different parts of the Old Testament. It's not uh, much of a contradiction. It's just uh, no, like a, a different different form of uh, as someone different who grew approach. Up a, Whoa! As someone who grew up I went in a religious to a Christian household, school. I know, and I did too. There's a lot I of contradiction. I didn't go to a Christian school, but I mean, obviously my family was religious and there's lots of contradictions in there. Out of curiosity, Paul, do you have a few of those contradictions? Do you, can you yeah. state a few of those contradictions? Well, there's more. I mean, first of all, again, I, I do feel like they're splitting hairs in terms of, um, you know, these rules apply to these certain people and these rules don't apply. And different, um, whatchamacallit, um, denominations, they take different parts of it. I mean, for example, I grew up Baptist. And Baptists were like, oh, we don't drink. And it was like, but like Catholics do drink, right? And you go to like, why, like Jesus drank wine. Why don't we drink? And it was because they interpreted it as uh, <laughs> they were followers of the John the Baptist sect of, of Christianity. And essentially John the Baptist, part of his um, covenant with God and the way that he expressed his devotion was that he didn't drink. That was part of his thing. But like, but then they look down on other religions that, that do drink and it's like, or other denominations of Christianity that do drink. And I'm like, but Jesus drank. Like, it's just, like, it's okay to say like, okay, I'm Baptist. So we choose not to drink, but then you look down on other people and you put into laws. Like for example, where I live, you literally can't buy alcohol on Sunday. Right? Okay. Like what, what the hell is the point of that? That's not a contradiction in the Bible. It's just a contradiction among the followers. Well, okay. But that same thing is happening in Islam. I mean, when you break that down into Sunni versus Shia and like, it's like much the less core contradiction, happen, the though. core contradiction of Sunni versus Shia is that, uh, generally speaking, the Shia Wahhabist 
version, which is the Saudi Arabian version, the, the ISIS version, very much thinks that jihad is a personal or is um, a call to actually take up arms. Whereas the Shia version tends to say that jihad is more personal. And in, even in Indonesia, this is a struggle. There's a Vice did a, a segment on Sharia law in Indonesia this week. Um, and they the struggle that's happening in Indonesia right now, Aceh is implementing Sharia law because they believe that Sharia is literally a template for government, whereas the secularists in Indonesia believe that Sharia is guidelines that you live by, right? In the same way the Christians would say, well, I believe in the Ten Commandments and I believe in following the Ten Commandments, but I don't think we should put people in prison for adultery or lying or not obeying their parents. Like, that's the debate that's happening in Indonesia right now, is essentially Sharia says to do this and this, but do we put people in prison? Do we make it the official government law? And so those things happen yeah, in all religions. And that's that's why um, sh- terrorism is a lot more common in Sunni Islam than it is in Shia yes. Islam. Because Sunni Islam takes a much more confrontational interpretation of both Sharia and um, Jihad than Shia does. So, but then I also want to say the other thing is the other contradictions are that you see in day to day life with Christianity that that I always had a problem with was the New Testament Christianity is very much supposed to be about forgiveness and. Um, turn the other cheek um, love thy neighbors love themselves right and it's more contradiction in the way people I feel like in the United States practice Christianity is that they tend not to turn the other cheek they tend to like like they they'll talk about the parts that say uh, you know you should execute you should stone to death gay people nah, for case. an eye a tooth for a tooth yeah they'll, they'll say eye for an eye for a tooth for a tooth but then Jesus in the New Testament says turn the other cheek right there are contradictions like that, but there's, but even deeper, there's contradictions in the way it's executed. For example, in the old, you know, in the Old Testament, they'll, you know, fundamentalist Christians here will, like I said, follow the things that say, you know, um, you shouldn't have gay relationships, but then they'll ignore the part that says, um, welcome immigrants into your country, right? Like, love the sojourner as you love yourself, because you were once a stranger in this land. Right. I mean, that's literally from the Bible um, telling Hebrews to welcome immigrants. And and so you split hairs and they say, well, this part doesn't didn't just apply now. It applies forever. But this other part only applied to just the Jews the living in Egypt at the time. Wasn't Those Tony Abbott like literally happened. religiously against immigration? Do what? Wasn't like Tony Abbott literally lig- religiously against immigration? I mean... Lots of people. So, and and I also want to say, I also want to say to the point that Philip made earlier about majority of Christian countries, like homosexuality is more uh, accepted. I'm not disagreeing with that, but I think in terms of pure population, it's important to remember the total population of Europe and the United States is between 800 and 900 million. And yes, in those countries, they're mostly Christian or non-religious as most of Europe is. What the hell is that sound? It's Amr being, uh, Amr, being distracting. Noise. Jesus, Amr. Stop. It's the sound of Amr uh, looking for sources. Yeah. I, I, think, he's, I think it's a sound. I don't know what it is. Anyway, 
So there's eight eight hundred and nine hundred million people in Europe who mostly identify as either Christian or non-religious, and yes, are accepting homosexuality. But based on pure numbers, homosexuality is technically illegal in India at still at this point, and that's a billion people. So, if you go by country, yes, it's easy to say. Well, most Christian countries are uh, more accepting of, of homosexuality, but there is one big country that's majority Hindu, partially Muslim where it's still technically illegal, although the Supreme Court, from what I read, is, is looking into it. I mean, I would like to point year. out that India is really shitty at enforcing laws. Like, yes. the entire government is corrupt. So corrupt that, like, you know, every single time you get stopped for a ticket, the cop's just like, hey, you give me a bribe, this ticket goes away. Right. But but the yeah, same thing applies to these oh, countries. That's nice. The same thing applies to these countries where homosexuality is illegal. So, for example, uh, Dominica, it's it's illegal in Dominica, but the president of Dominica says, yeah, I'm not enforcing it. So, like, those things happen, too, in countries where it's technically illegal. So, anyway, so we talked a lot in time about that, but I, I just wanted to, yeah. to confirm. Or I just wanted to clear up a statement that I made on the last episode. So. All right. All right. Okay. So we're doing news now? Let's do it. Okay. So the first article, uh, or the, sorry, the first story we have is talking about Florida lawmakers uh, want to require Medicaid enrollees to work. So this goes to um, the Trump administration has opened doors uh, to allow states, because Medicaid is a is a joint state and federal program, where states implement Medicaid, but the funding is shared between the state and the federal government. And um, so the Trump administration basically sets guidelines, but allows waivers for states to implement Medicaid as they see fit. And one of the things the Trump administration has put forward is putting work requirements on Medicaid. And Florida has announced um, that they are going to introduce that. So this comes from the Miami Herald, which says uh, the Florida House is moving ahead with a plan to force able-bodied Medicaid recipients to prove they are employed, participating in job training or searching for work in order to receive benefits. The same requirements the state puts on welfare recipients. The House also wants to require most Medicaid recipients pay $10 or $15 a month, depending on their income. Uh, If Medicaid enrollees didn't meet the work requirements or failed to pay their premium, they would lose coverage for a full year. And let's see. so, yeah. that seems fine to me. Yeah, I like it. Same. I mean, it's only it's only there because by having Medicaid coverage, you still, as an individual, would want to prove that you would like to eventually get better coverage to get off of. Medicaid and seek a, a private and in, private insurance deals and so yeah, I'm perfectly okay with this system. There's not very much I can say. I feel like on the surface of it, it makes sense, but like it was also saying in the article that the majority of the people actually receiving Medicaid were elderly, blind, or disabled children and pregnant women. So well, yeah, but it also said those who are able to work. I mean, it would depend right. on the definition. But uh, yeah, if so, the people, no one is arguing that grandma has to 
go to work or that they disabled or they go, uh, go without health healthcare if he can't work in construction or anywhere. But for able-bodied individuals who otherwise could be productive, if this applies to them as the law clearly states, then should be implemented and applied uh, to them specifically. So, so here's the problem. So if you drill down into the third of Medicaid beneficiaries who are working age adults and don't get supplemental security income for a disability, uh, you find that the majority do work. So 59% of able-bodied Medicaid recipients uh, work uh, either full-time or part-time. 41% work full-time, 18% work part-time. But of the remaining 41% that do not work, 35% say that they're ill or disabled, but they don't qualify for Social Security uh, uh, income for a disability. 28% are taking care of a family, 18% are in school, 8% are required, and 8% could not find work. Um, and so essentially the idea of that there's all these people out there that aren't working uh, because they don't want to is actually not necessarily true. So this becomes sort of a, a you know, it, it's like a solution in search of a problem, right? Which, oh, so this I mean, is actually what a uh, professor of health policy at George Washington University says. Uh, she says, quote, this is a solution in search of a problem. There's no evidence that too many people aren't working who can work. If you say able-bodied enough times, you give a sense that there are people just sitting around who could work, but that's just not the case. I mean, I would like to point out that in that thing, it says if you are showing that you are looking for work, then you qualify. Right. So it's but not like doesn't... someone who is, doesn't, isn't able to get a job doesn't count. If they can show that they're actively looking for a job and they want to work, then under this law, this they're still allowed to get Medicaid. Right. If they can't. But that ignores the 28% of the it's really the 28 percent of the one-third uh who are taking care of the family or the 18 percent who are in school or the eight percent that are retired right because there are people that retire before technically what's considered retirement age is 65 right and so they point out that ssi program so the 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 definition they use of able-bodied is if are you receiving ssi but ssi doesn't cover all or even most disabled people Many people who fall outside its purview nonetheless have has this is from the Vox article. Many people who fall outside its purview nonetheless have disabilities that make working difficult. Uh, in an excellent piece on the likely effects of work requirements, the New York Times' Abby Goodenough, which is a funny name, interviewed a, na a man named Jimmy Brunson who has painful neuropathy in his feet due to diabetes. He relies on Medicaid for diabetes treatment and works when he can, but he told Goodenough. Uh, even though sometimes I can get a job, you've got to understand, sometimes I can't even walk. Uh, catch notes that someone with diabetes wouldn't typically qualify for SSI. But type 2? Would any diabetes, type 1 or type 2. But Brunson would still be hurt by a work requirement. And so, ultimately, here's the thing. You're, take, you're taking people, like, this is not a problem in the sense that it's Less than one sixth, one seventh of people on Medicaid are actually able bodied that aren't working, right? And they're quote unquote able bodied, right? 
And so ultimately, like, you're putting a work requirement on this, you're just going to eliminate people who have, who, for example, they're married to someone. That's another thing. Like, there's a lot of people who are there on Medicaid. They're married to someone who has health insurance, but only for themselves. So they're on Medicaid because they're living in poverty, you know, because a full-time job at minimum wage it puts you below the poverty line for a family of four. So the wife and the kids might be on Medicaid and the wife stays home to work because it's cheaper than paying for childcare. And then what you say, if you put a work requirement is, well, now she can't, the wife just can't have healthcare. See, these are, these are interesting examples that I think show kind of the difference between the liberal and the conservative mentality, because what you're, you're pointing out here isn't like something that is super typical. It's kind of like the the one person out of the group who gets like screwed over or the one percent or the three percent or whatever it is. And the liberal would say, Oh look at that, we need to expand our definition of who needs to get health care and so on and so forth. And ultimately you have people abuse that definition. That's ultimately what's gonna happen. Um well, but see, or think, you have the conservative mindset, which is that, sure, we're going to leave people out, but then it's up to society to basically cover the cost through like charity. So if a liberal cares so much about the person who's out on the streets or doesn't have any health insurance, why doesn't he get 50 people together and like help pay for his, his health care? I mean, something I'd also like to say, which is this Brunson fellow, yes, he can't stand and his feet hurt and what have you, but there still are several jobs that he could get, such as working at the DMV, sitting around and doing paperwork and what have you. Oh, and in addition, uh, Paul, you brought up the example of the mother who would work at home. If she was uh, still under the under somebody's payroll, then wouldn't that technically qualify them for Medicaid, which is the very intent of most of, well, the intent of the government to provide coverage for people who need it. If she has the job, even if she is working at home, then she not, she's not technically out of coverage as long as she is working. Also, technically speaking, I'm no. pretty sure that if one person has coverage, like as in my family, my dad's the one who has the Medicare plan. Like, it's underneath his name. We all fall underneath his plan. Right, so, so all so, we need okay. to do is essentially have it so that it falls underneath the working person's plan. Right, but now you're getting into whole, all kinds of regulations about employer-based insurance. So he, let's go on to look at further the article because I think the argument that Brett made is kind of um, I don't. I disagree with it. That the liberals will look for the one case and point it out. Yes, I use one example. Generally speaking, I like to look at the trends, and because I think the other, I think the opposite. I think conservatives will find the one example of someone quote unquote abusing the system or defrauding the system, and they'll point to oh, so we have to cut all these programs and we have to make it harder to get. So See, I, 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 I don't just, like either yeah, of those statements. True. No, no, I, I, know. I don't. So that's, I, I, so let's, I mean, look, at, both let's look at the data. So let's look at the data and what it actually says. So uh, because we recently expanded Medicaid. So there is clear data on what happens when you give a lot of people Medicaid that didn't previously handle that didn't previously have it. So so the article goes on to talk about 
issues that arise with people with substance use or mental health issues who may not be enrolled in disability programs still need coverage for antidepressants or antipsychotics or mood stabilizers. Um, if they're not working due to one of those conditions, getting Medicaid and gaining treatment could help you start working. And so uh, a Medicaid expert who runs the Center for Children and Families at Georgetown says, quote, we all want to encourage people to work and support them to work. If you take away their health care, people are less likely to be able to work, not more, unquote. And so this actually there's a, a study that showed the Medicaid expansion experience, experience, which extended health insurance to millions of low income adults, has produced evidence that Medicaid encourages rather than deters work. An evaluation of Michigan's expansion in the New England Journal of Medicine estimated that it expanded employment by more than 30,000 jobs. Ohio's evaluation of its expansion found that 74.8% of unemployed enrollees said getting covered made it easier to get and maintain employment. All right, but this isn't a problem to like 90% of people. Also, I'd like to go back with this whole Republicans will take this one person or Democrats will take this one person and kind of just say that's kind of pigeonholing both Democrats and Republicans. Well, it's, it's, it's not really like in all cases. It's just a mentality. And to respond to what Paul said, I mean, it happens more often on the liberal side because it's a hell of a lot easier to add. I mean, um, I don't. I, would I think that both sides it's, are it's, very guilty of it's this. It's easier. Exactly. It's easier to that, give people handouts than it is to take them away. Oh yes, no, that's no it's not. No, it absolutely it, is. The, like that's the whole reason Obamacare still exists. Like re- what Republicans are finding is that it's much easier to take away a government assistance program than it is to give it. Because here's the problem, and it's the problem that Republicans wait. don't like to admit: <laughs> government programs are popular with people. Like the conservative ideology doesn't agree with it, but Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid are all incredibly popular programs, particularly among the people who use them. I mean, Social Security has over an 85% approval rate among among every among Americans as a whole, but Republicans tend to skew older, right? Let's be honest, the demographics of, of Republicans tend to skew older. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Old people really like Social Security and and Republicans keep running into this wall where George Bush ran into it in 2006 when he wanted to privatize Social Security and it turns out that people like it. So so what you know the point like what Brett was saying is true. It is incredibly difficult to roll back a government program, but not because, but not because of it's because people like them because they actually tend to work pretty well. I mean that's not entirely true. Like my uncle, he was a psychiatrist, and like back before the days of Reagan, there were people like you know, it's far more profitable for me to just keep having kids, and not essentially speaking start working and all these kinds of things well but, so okay but that, is, that's an anecdote it, so you're making the same problem we already ran into but that was also uh, that I mean, was also before fair. that was also before the welfare reform of 96 which drastically and, changed and the, 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 the point that i'm trying to make is that is a danger in welfare that people will feel more incentivized to uh, not work than they would to work, and that's something that we need to avoid. Well, okay, so at the yeah. same so time, I agree with that. we also we also have the other side of the coin, which is mm-hmm. without giving any welfare or help at all, people don't aren't incentivized to work, 
because they can't get by enough. Well, but see, I think the problem is because I agree that there, the implementation that we have in certain government programs does make it, it does disincentivize people. Like that is the conservative argument that actually has some truth to it. And I can say this from um, personal experience because my dad, when he was uh, laid off from his job and he was searching for another job, um, you know, he was on unemployment for a while. Uh, this was in the 2008 to 2010 recession. He was on unemployment for a while. And the way unemployment works is that uh, you have to be looking for a job, which is fine and all that stuff. Um, but if you accept a job, uh, any job at all, you immediately become uh, unqualified. Like you're disqualified uh, from receiving unemployment going forward, even if that job doesn't pay particularly well. And so the problem he ran into is there were numerous jobs that he wanted to get that would be part-time that maybe could have led to full-time work in the future or that were seasonal that could have led into a full-time position. And he literally couldn't do it because if he did, he would have lost his unemployment. And so the way that program works is completely, that's disincentivizing people to work. Another example is the way most uh, welfare programs uh, like food stamps and, and TANF are applied. They tend to have things like uh, wealth limits. So for example, in order to qualify for, um, for, for TANF, the, the temporary assistance for needy families, the welfare program, you can't have more than one car and your total wealth outside of your home can exceed it varies from state to state. I think in California, it's like $3,000. Like you can't have more than $3,000 in total wealth in order to get welfare. And it's like you're distant. And so you have people who suddenly come under a position where somebody gets unemployed uh, in their house uh, or becomes disabled and they have to actually divest of their wealth in order to qualify for welfare to maintain uh, a certain income. And so there are absolute truths to this disincentivizing thing. But I feel like most of them come from come from this idea that people are defrauding the system. Right. So we can put all these requirements, like, for example, work requirements on Medicaid, where we say you have to do this and this and this because we don't want people getting these programs that don't deserve it. And the end result is you actually disincentivize people from working. Right. You disincentivize people from taking it because you made it so hard to qualify for the programs and do some work or work part time or do whatever that people literally do just say it literally makes more sense to not work. And so as a progressive, I tend to support more universal programs, right? Like this is the argument for just make Medicaid universal for everybody because then we don't have to worry about, uh, about, you know, work requirements and this and that just everybody gets it and you can put stuff on top of it. You can put private plans on top of it. You can do stuff like that. And then we just quit worrying about defrauding stuff or we quit doing this. It's just like, everybody's got skin in the game. Everybody's doing the same thing. And and then we don't disincentivize anybody. People go out to work for the stuff that goes on top of it. Assuming that the programs uh, remain as they are and without the implementation of uh, Medicaid for all, that's a different story. I'd rather have a system. One, the system isn't designed to be accessible. The whole point of uh, a government program is to, or at least I think, uh, provide temporary relief so people can get back on their feet even if they are disincentivized that is uh, and they end up suffering because the benefits of a particular program outweigh what they would get by working 
that is a risk that they take. And does it say? Sorry, I was gonna say. Does it say in the article how many people are on Medicaid in Florida? Uh, well, I already closed it. So hold on, let me look again. <laughs> well, the reason I was asking is I was trying to figure out. We pretty much came down to saying that if this bill goes through, only about eight percent was it of people are able-bodied that would be able to work and would be able to give the ten to fifteen dollars a month. I think that was the right percentage. I was just trying to figure out um, if they're also saying where well, you're putting skin in the game, you're actually putting money into Medicaid. Yeah. Or would would the money go back into Medicaid is what they're saying? Yeah, it, it would go to the Medicaid funding. It would help cover okay. the state costs. Uh, I'm sorry, trying to I, figure I, I, out... Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, that's right. I just want to know if you have the number. Uh, no, so um, it says in the article that Florida refuse the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Health Care Act. So there are half a million of its poorest residents that would qualify for Medicaid under the expansion, but don't have it now. Um, but it doesn't say it doesn't say how many people are, are on the program right now. It does say Florida already. So from the Herald, the, arg, the article again, it says Florida already has one of the most restrictive Medicaid programs in the nation. It is only open to adults with dependent children, pregnant women, low-income seniors, and people with disability. For adults to be eligible, they must make less than $6,652 in annual income for a family of three. Yeah, it's a bit much. $6,600 for a family of three. You have to make less than that to qualify for Medicaid. Uh, I need to find out. What was it? 66 what? $6,652. A year. Divided by 12, divided by four weeks, so $138.50 a week. Jesus Christ. That's kind of unbelievable. The one article I was looking for that said that uh, with uh, Obamacare, uh, or not, well, during Obamacare, that um, there's an increase of 8% of applicants or people that were on Medicaid in, in Florida, so... Reverse doing reverse math. I estimated about three million people. I don't know if that's right that are on Medicaid in Florida. Um, right. So I was doing eight percent of that. I think the population of Florida is twenty six or twenty eight million or something like that. Yeah. So I was just doing the math on it, and that would be about two hundred forty five thousand people. If that number is correct, are the eight percent are eligible or able to work? Uh, that would mean about uh, two point five million dollars in revenue going towards $23 billion in Medicaid um, that we spend. So that amounts to one-tenth of a percent, one-hundredth of a percent that you're actually putting back. So financially, it still doesn't make sense. So it's more of a, let's put, it seems to me, it seems let's put more restrictions. So if you fail another one of the restrictions, we take you off Medicare, Medicaid, I mean, um, and we save money that way. So I feel like it's just always a push to, let's just get people off this to save money uh, without thinking of the constant lessons. So we're going long on this topic, so I want to wrap it up. But I will also say, like, that that has been the experience in where I live in Indiana, because Indiana has a similar setup with their Medicaid expansion, which is that you have to pay, and it's not even, it's like less than, I think it's like a dollar a month or something to, to be part of Medicaid here. But that actually reduced the, like, the people that ended up signing up and qualifying for Medicaid for an entire year since they expanded it uh, was like half of what they projected because the the restrictions they put on there. So yeah, like the the ten dollars 
the one dollar a month that Indiana is requiring. It has nothing to do with actually helping make up funds. It is a way to put another level on there to, like, sorry, if you're making you know one hundred thirty eight dollars a month or a week, and you can't afford the fifteen dollars this month, like you just lose Medicaid for an entire year. That's that's a way to get people to that they're trying to contain Medicaid costs. That's essentially what it comes down to. So. Okay. Maybe I don't do so. Okay, so we're ready to move on. Yes. Okay, so this is Neil Gorsuch. Um, so uh, he was. Oh, God damn it! Stupid New York Times. I've reached my free article limit for the month. Fuck off. <laughs> uh, I hate when papers do that. Yeah, Washington Post does it. Too, I wonder why they're really dying nice. out. I know, right? It's like it's like it would be one thing, but like I'm already seeing, I'm still seeing ads on the page as it's telling me that my free articles are up. Like, go to hell. Uh, okay, so I'll read the NPR article about it then, uh, which is about um, basically the Senate pulled the nu- nuclear trigger. Mobile projects are expect. Autoplay video. Yep. Yeah. Up on New York Times. Yep. Uh, man, I wonder why those websites are dying. Anyway. Um, the failing New York Times. So the Senate basically pulled the nuclear trigger. Republicans repealed the filibuster for uh, Supreme Court appointments on Thursday. And then uh, Friday, they approved uh, Supreme Court Neil Gorsuch. Um, Mitch McConnell said in his closing floor speech, quote, this will be the first and last partisan filibuster of a Supreme Court justice, unquote. Which I feel like is just definitionally incorrect, but okay. Well, it'll be the last, but it, I don't think it was the first. Um, yeah, so anyway, uh, it goes on to say Democrats appeal, oppose Gorsuch for a variety of reasons, including his conservative judicial philosophy, dissatisfaction with his answers during his confirmation hearings, and a simmering resentment toward McConnell's decision to block any consideration of President Obama's uh, nominee, Merrick Garland, last year. So... And, and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said, quote, we believe that what Republicans did to Merrick Garland was f- worse than a filibuster, unquote. So. Oh. Man, I mean, what's done is done. Yeah. I mean, like, my whole thing about Neil Gorsuch is that basically at this point it's a zero-sum game. We lost Antonin Scalia, and we got another conservative to take his place. Just so long as Ruth Bader Ginsburg and oh, Justice Kennedy don't pop it within the next few years, we're good. You're going to find your dad in a ranch in Texas with a pillow over her head, without a doubt. We're not doing like, this why again. Does this keep happening? <laughs> why does this keep happening to Supreme Court justices? Hey, because look. Brett has a vendetta against Supreme Court justices. If so Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg weighs approximately 16 pounds. So if she dies of a heart attack in a, a hotel room, then I will say uh, an autopsy is warranted. But, uh, you know, She'll be other than that. Don't open that can of worms. I'm just saying. Just saying. No, but I mean, she's think, also like in her fucking 80s. Yeah. But I mean, she's much more likely to just. I guess it would be heart failure. I don't know if that would really be a heart attack. Just <laughs> the Democrats are just pumper full of all kinds of weird chemicals. No, they just pump her up. They're gonna do a weekend at Bernie's. Yeah, yeah. I was just to say they do weekend at Ruth's. 
Oh god, I would. Die. <laughs> we already we already know how she's gonna rule on several of these things. She's already given her opinion on capital punishment, abortion rights, things like that. We can we can make it work. Do <laughs> <laughs> pull uh, uh, Clarence Thompson, uh, uh, Thompson, and not uh, talk at all <laughs> anymore. Oh yeah. Is that what he's doing? Oh, no, no, no. You do what they did in South Park with the chef episode. Remember the episode where <laughs> yeah. chef becomes like dark chef? Yeah. And then they just like use all of his voice clips. Yeah. And the best thing is they never video record Supreme Court justices. Right. You know? Yeah, you would never know. How would you know? Yeah, because of reasons. So like, you know... They could be doing that right now. We wouldn't know. Well, I feel like somebody in the court. I mean, because the court is open, you just can't videotape it for some reason. Like if you're in DC, you could just walk in. So like, really? I feel like I don't know why they don't videotape it if you could just walk in. So I feel like somebody would say if you know, like RBG well, I know had, had, had it. if RBG had strings holding her up and animating her, I feel like people would say something. Well, I I know why they don't do that so that john oliver can have a segment with all with the dogs and the lobster and now the lobster well so so to the topic here yeah so (laughs) to the topic uh i think one of there's two questions i have that i want to pose to the panel if i may uh one what do we think this means in terms of future uh supreme court justices and two what do we think this means in terms of the future of the filibuster? And I guess to an extent, the Senate as, as a whole. With, 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 with regards to the political parties of, of justices or the way in which parties try to push their nominees forward. See, what I'd like to say is I think this kind of massively screws the Republicans over. Because <gasps> this door... That essentially speaking has it so that people can now just get their nominees in. So like when a Democrat's in charge or when Democrats are in control of the House, they can easily pull shit like this on the Republicans. And they've opened themselves up to it. Yeah. Yeah. I what sucks is this is another way that we're just splitting apart. Like there's now there's no reason. For anyone to be like, hey, let's try to get Democrats so we can get the 60 vote threshold. Now it's just like, yeah, we got it. We're good. We don't need to talk to them. So I feel like you're going to see candidates that are going to be even more. I mean, justices aren't supposed to be partisan, but you're going to see more extreme right and extreme left candidates now. No reason I mean, to be a moderate. Well, is candidates point, yeah. that are like people in this podcast and. I know I don't want to sound too circle jerky here, but like what I want in a politician is someone who's willing to talk to the other side, listen to them, and actually say, "Hey, one or two of your points is actually good, and I think that it warrants, you know, agreeing." And then you don't, what's the word? You don't oppose something because that's been proposed by a Democrat, and therefore I must not like it. Or that's been proposed by a Republican, therefore I must not agree with it because of partisan hackery. Yeah, as 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 far as the current 
climate, I regret seeing the filibuster used as a daily form of uh, cock blocking, for lack of a better term. <laughs> Whereas, well, the whole thing about the filibuster at some time ago was a symbol of occasional protest, of principled protest. And to see politicians resort to that whenever they're trying to stop a justice uh, being pushed through when the, it's a constitutional right of a president to do so, or when there's legislation that they haven't taken a second look at, that's problematic and it might this probably has set a harmful precedent for the future. Uh, yeah, I don't think it hurts one party, it hurts both. It just depends who's in power. Well, I think it was uh, when they were... Okay. <laughs> No, go ahead. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it was when they were right... I forgot what part of the Senate, but when they were pretty much discussing that they were going to go with the nuclear option, which would be getting rid of the filibuster. I think it was Lindsey Graham that was saying, like, hey, as a, like we shouldn't do this because it's going to hurt us more in the end. And as a Republican, that was kind of weird to hear. And then you know, he voted for it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. It was more of a showpiece, but it was it was nice to hear at that point, like, hey, you know, like, we can't just think in party, and then he voted for party anyways, but... As did John McCain. No, I think, I think all the points that have been made about, yeah, it's more likely to be... I think there's two facets to this going forward. One is, any um, justices that do get appointed are going to be more ideological than maybe once have been in the past, although... You know, Scalia, I think, was incredibly ideological. Um, Ginsburg also, I think, is pretty ideological. But the idea of getting someone like John Roberts is probably not going to happen too much in the future. Um, on, I also think, though, what I worry about, too, is more Merrick Garland situations. Because now, um, what's going to happen when, for example, there's a, a Democratic president and a Republican Senate or vice versa, a Republican president, Democratic Senate. Um, you know, does this further incentivize people to pull the McConnell and just say, we're not even going to hold hearings on your Supreme Court justice anymore? Because as soon as we get as soon as we get both of them, we don't even need a majority. We can just do it right. Like the filibuster, the fact that you had to get 60 not only meant there had to be some consensus among the the people that you did put up, but it also meant that you couldn't rely on having a thin margin in the Senate, you know, and the president to, to pass it anyway. So it didn't, it encouraged the minority to also have hearings. Now, if you say, well, I only need 51 senators and the presidency to get my guy, then I'll just stall and I'll just wait until we get both of those things. And so how, how, you know, we sat with eight justices on the bench for over a year after Scalia died, which is, unprecedented in the night in the 20th and 21st century it happened more often in the 19th century but you know that was more than twice as long as we went without with an open seat uh before merrick garland or before scalia's death and i just wonder how much more we're going to see that i could definitely see that happening in the 2018 elections if it swings towards a a majority of uh democrats and, and one of the justices dies they're right. like, oh, you think a year was long? Let's wait for two, you know? Right. What, what's going to stop them now? And what's going to stop them? Because 
because all they know is that we got to have 51 Democrats and the presidency in 2020 and we'll get our guy or gal or whatever. Right. And, and I think in terms of, and I guess the question I didn't pose very well was what do we think is the future of the legislative filibuster? Because look, Harry Reid uh, got rid of the filibuster for executive appointments and federal judges. And now Republicans have gotten rid of it for Supreme court justices. So the filibuster really only main t- remains intact for legislation. And, you know, dem- give it time. Won't exist that's, for that very long either. Well, that's the thing, right? Everybody's going around saying now that they want to protect the filibuster for legislation and all that stuff. But look, Democrats, when they took away the filibuster for judges and executive appointments, said that they wanted to maintain the filibuster for Supreme Court justices. And then when Republicans had the option, they said the same thing and then they got rid of it. And so, yeah, I don't don't know that the filibuster is going to stick around. Well, that, that's what they've done and set as a sort of a precedent out and see how it can survive. Well, if a filibuster works into a party's favor, not just not just for the pushing through of uh, Supreme Court justices or people to higher office, that it might very well be used again if it fits any party's best interests. What what would you have to do to take away the legislative filibuster? Is it a simple majority vote? Yes, it's the same thing they did for the Supreme Court. Okay. So so, so here's wouldn't so it here's, be here's the process that. Well, sorry. So here's the process that actually happens. Uh, this is this is how it went Thursday. Um, so. Um, so basically they were debating on the on Neil Gorsuch because filibuster is essentially you call for a cloture vote, like I said last week, to end debate. So they were debating on on Neil Gorsuch. Uh, this is from the NPR article. It says McConnell made a point of order that ending debate on nomination only requires a simple majority. The motion was not sustained by the chair because Senate rules required 60 votes. So McConnell then made a motion to overturn that ruling. And once that motion passed on a party line vote, the Gorsuch nomination only needed 51 votes. So they would do the same thing with legislation. They would bring legislation. It would get debate. McConnell or whoever would say, hey, I make a motion to end debate. They would say, well, you need 60 votes. And then he would say, I make a motion to not need 60 votes. And then they would vote and you only need a majority. And Isn't that I mean, weird this- that the, the rule that requires you to have 60 votes only needs 51 to be overturned? Right, and that's what I was getting ready to say. Like, how ridiculous was it that nobody thought about that when they wrote that rule into the Senate rules, right? Like, oh, maybe we should make the rule that keeps the filibuster. Maybe you should have to break a filibuster to get rid of it. Well, I, I think the, the only thing I see going forward, if they really, if both sides really believe in keeping the legislature, and I, I know it's a, a very extreme idea or, an unlikely idea is you making an amendment. Well, no, I mean, somebody theoretically could come back forward in the future and you could propose a new rule. Like if you had a very, okay. a very, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, principled actor, so to speak, that would come through and say, hey, I'm going to make a motion to require 60 votes to end or to invoke cloture. And then that could pass by a simple majority. Uh, and then you could also make the rule say, and I also say that this rule has to require 60 votes 
to be repealed or something like that, right? Like, that you could theoretically bring it back and make it filibuster-proof on its own, but it's just, why, who's going to do that now? Nobody's going to do that now. But I also think this gets to the question of, does the Senate really need... Like, is the filibuster really important? The, the Senate, the whole point of... I feel like the Senate has already been reduced. People are talking about this like, well, the filibuster helped maintain... Like, the Senate was supposed to be about partisanship because the House was supposed to be where partisanship happened because um, that only requires majority votes and things like that. The Senate was like a buffer. But I feel like the Senate hasn't been that in a long time because yeah. you know, when the Senate was originally created, senators weren't elected, right? I mean, they were appointed by state legislators. and But now we're at the point where senators are elected, they run on parties. Like, the natural conclusion of that is it's partisan. That, you know, senators used to be aristocrats i mean when when the country was founded the senate was essentially the aristocracy that was the wealthy buffer to prevent against populist swings but at this point now you're directly electing senators is very partisan so what is the filibuster even necessary anymore yeah it's not like when they had the filibuster the senate was getting anything accomplished Anyway, so move on. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of disagreement. I think they should probably keep it, though. Okay, so the next story, Devin Nunes to step aside. Oh, God damn it, it's the New York Times article again. Devin <laughs> Nunes to step aside from House Investigation on Russia. Uh, maybe I should subscribe to this. This podcast is getting very expensive for me. I want you all to know. So. We're advocating for a Patreon. Expensive? It's getting expensive. I'm advocating for a Patreon. Do you know how much what my you... website costs per year? It costs me like $15 a month. There's so many podcast. like cheaper ways you can do this. <laughs> I mean, we let, could do let's, it, let's, not, not to get let, it on iTunes and Google Play. Let's, let's, let's get a Patreon. I think we should do that. I think it's early. I think we should have more than 10 yeah, likes on our Facebook early. page before we do that. <laughs> Eventually, well, we have ten likes. I'm excited. Yeah, we have ten likes, but I think half of them are us. Double the amount of people on this podcast. Yeah, well, half of them are us. So. That's not okay, true. Philip hasn't liked it. Brett hasn't liked it. <gasps> I'm an admin. Yeah, you haven't fucking liked it. Yeah, but you haven't liked it. Oh, you have to. I if haven't liked it. You're admin. You're like whatever. Right. I think only I'll like literally that. only like Paul and Marco have liked it. You're only okay. making you even happier. Well, you guys should tell your friends because uh, so far the people that have liked it, I think a third of them are friends of mine. So, uh, okay. I've invited my friends to like it. Like everyone on the debate team, I know that I've invited to like it. <gasps> oh! I don't know why that was elicited that response, okay. but okay, I'll reach out to people. That means I have to censor myself. You don't, Brett. You no, never you censor yourself. You, you, even in no, debate, no. you don't censor yourself. No. Like people are just like, "Why the hell did you say that, Brett?" And you're like, no, mm -hmm. "Okay, Devin Nunes to step aside from House investigation on Russia." Basically, Devin Nunes. We talked about it last he's week. Dumbass. Yeah, he's incredibly compromised, and so he decided this week. Well, the thing that really precipitated this was. Uh, the House Ethics Committee, I think, started an investigation into Devin Nunes. So he decided to step aside 
uh, from the investigation, and it's now being led by I I forget I think it's a representative from Texas. So still a partisan, still a Republican, Trump supporter. So I don't even know if this is going to make a big difference in the grand scheme of things. Uh, but Devin Nunes is no longer leading the House investigation. Um, I mean, then we can it. avoid dumbass situations in which he delivers news from the White House to the White House. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think this still doesn't... What we talked about last week was that, hey... Um, Really, you need like an impartial, like and John McCain has said this, you need a, a special investigation or you need a third party investigation. And still, this does none of that. So, like, I don't know that we really solved a problem by replacing one Trump supporter with another on the on the to lead the investigation. Well, who's leading the investigation now that Nunes has stepped down? Some dude from Texas. I'll, I'll, I'll go to Conway. Oh, God. Yeah. I That's what I say. hope not. No, not Kellyanne Conway. That was a show. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it actually is Conway, Conway, but it's like Todd Conway or something like that. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Don't, don't take my word I, on I think, that. I feel like everyone in this podcast is united in their dislike of Kellyanne Conway. Yeah, I hate her. Yeah, she, she's... Uh... I don't hate her. I just... She's a bit of an odd. Absolutely despise her. Despicable person. Man, I thought you were hashtag MAGA, hashtag Trump train. Yeah, yeah but doesn't yeah, have to agree with everything. Well, she got your boy elected. to the liberal stereotype. Do what? I don't like women. <laughs> Why do you say it that way? There's an E in there. It's women. Well, man. No, it's According women. to it's a bunch of feminists, it's W-O-M-Y-N. I don't think that's true. I, I don't think that's a thing. Are you sure you want to share yeah, this with the there, debate? There, there, there is really a movement sure? to spell woman as W-O-M-Y-N. Here it is. Oh, okay. Women. Non-standard spelling of women adopted by some feminists in order to spelling the word ending men. Yeah. I mean, why does it end with man or men? That's not really fair. Because it comes from the Bible where it says, here's a man, and she's called a woman because she comes from the man. Yeah, she came from our ribs. Yeah. That's that's science right there. I didn't say the Bible was science. Like, it was written by a bunch of dudes who didn't know where the sun went Whoa. when it went down. But that, but that also doesn't make sense Whoa. because this is English and the Bible was written in Aramaic and Hebrew. So, like... Oh, you got you there. kind of translated it and localized it. Can I, ask, can I ask the panel something? Yeah? No, Philip, this is in no way a conversation Fuck podcast. Fuck off. So, with all, the, with all of these investigations into Russia's uh, alleged hacking the of the election and the Trump administration's alleged involvement, what will change if this is all confirmed, if if everybody confirms fair and square that Russia did intervene, that for some reason the, that even the, no, the Kremlin wouldn't admit anything, but if there was uh, enough evidence beyond uh, doubt 
that people were involved from our side, 100, meaning the U.S. government with the Kremlin. What would change as far as the current political atmosphere and what would that imply for the current administration? Well, I mean, you figure they'd have to... The most, the most likely bad situation would be, I mean, for the Trump administration, would be uh, impeachment. And he would be charged with uh, treason, I guess, it, depending on how deep it went. I'm not sure exactly what law. Um, what, what, the question is, how, would that happen? And no, I don't think that would happen. Certainly not with a, a Republican House and Senate. Well, how, how would it be treat, treasonous if there wasn't any... Treason would imply a betrayal of a sort and forking over state secrets to a foreign power, not necessarily having any assistance or even contacts with foreign governments. I mean, not necessarily have divulged anything which could put the country in harm. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, well, it doesn't really matter. Like, even if it comes out that Trump is a Russian agent who is working directly for the Kremlin and he somehow manages to get impeached, we're just going to have Mike Pence be put into power. And Mike Pence is basically, like, he has a lot, he has some different views than Trump. And I think that he'd probably be a better leader than Trump. Ooh. I disagree. As someone from Indiana, I disagree. <laughs> I mean, like, my favorite thing about Mike Pence is that when he was booed and criticized at Hamilton, like, his response was, that is their right as Americans to boo and criticize me. That's I don't agree with the statement that was made by the people of Hamilton. I don't think they should have made it there, but it's their right as Americans to make free speech like that. And then we have our president who boos and hisses and acts <gasps> petulant in response. You know? He literally said this theater should be a safe space. The irony was palpable. Yeah, he was joking. Oh, okay. Was yeah. this Trump? Yes. Or Pence? Trump tweeted, Trump tweeted that the theater should be a safe space. I know, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's anyway, like I'm sure he totally didn't do that. I'm sure yeah, he totally was, did that ironically. I think he was serious with the taco bowl thing. I mean, come on. No, I do. But, I think yeah. he's that narcissistic. <laughs> like, I, I think this is the problem. Anyway, we have to get past this idea that Trump people keep saying him, don't take him seriously, don't take him literally, or take him seriously, but not literally. Like, at some point, where do we take him literally? He's doing some of the stuff that he said he was going to do until he finds out that he can't actually do it, and then he, you know, gives up and goes plays golf. But Oh, he's got to keep trying if he wants to accomplish anything. But as far as what he has, well, what, let, let's look at what he's started. Deportations by ICE agents have uh, increased, however, not on the scale that he would have wanted. Oh. The, the rollbacks on federal regulations are well, actually there. He got a lot of what he wanted. Healthcare, big screw up on his behalf and on behalf of the people, well, on behalf of the Republican Congress, essentially. And foreign policy yet to be determined. Kind of pissed off about Syria, but that's a different story. 
But I think the I thing should... is, he's attempted, right? Like, he has failed at everything that he's done. But he said, we're going to build the wall. He tried to ban Muslims from six or seven Muslim-majority countries, right? Like, he rolled back... He, he did things even that he said he wouldn't do that people thought, you know... People voted for him in, things, in terms of things like bombing Syria, which we'll get to later, and rolling back protections for trans students, stuff like that. So, I think the idea that, like, no, I think we should be taking him pretty literally when he says these things. Because just the fact that he's failed doesn't mean that he hasn't still tried to do those things. Fair enough. Good point. Well, and so I also want to talk about, real quick, too... Uh, oh, man. Susan, so, this, this is this is related to the Nunes investigation. Uh, the uh, Susan Rice thing, which was Susan Rice was the on the National Security Council under Obama. And uh, the story came out that, you know, Trump came out and said that basically Susan Rice. So um, this was part of what Nunes revealed, which is that uh, or what he supposedly went and told the White House or what he got from the White House was that when she was National Security Advisor, she had um, requested that the names of Trump transition officials uh, be unmasked in the correspondence that was um, indirectly uh, collected, or what's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, the, the communications that were uh, incidentally collected among Russian officials talking either to Trump transition officials or talking about Trump transition officials. And so that was what Nunes was saying to talk about the spying stuff. Uh, Fox News, Tucker, Tucker Carlson has gone on to say this, that, oh, she participated in monitoring the Trump campaign. Um, this has gotten a lot of play among Alex Jones and the, that kind of crowd. That <laughs> This is evidence that she was uh, monitoring the Trump campaign. But the facts are, she really wasn't. Uh, what she did was, like I said, she asked for um, the names of people being incidentally collected uh, to be unmasked. So these were communications of foreign officials where she basically found where we picked up Trump transition officials where they were being discussed. And she asked for those names to be unmasked. That is perfectly legal. They were not wiretapping the Trump campaign or the Trump transition. They were not spying on the Trump campaign or Trump transition to the extent that anybody was monitored was they were talking to Russian officials who were being wiretapped and the national security advisor has the legal right to unmask American names. So. Well, I mean, there's a point where it's like, is it really coincidental? I mean, it is, but was it on purpose, basically? That's starting to sound real tinfoil hatty. Ah, we're, we're allowed to monitor. That, we're allowed to wiretap the Russian ambassador. I think it would be irresponsible not to, like, to be honest with you. If, if you say email... I mean, there the was Russian a point in the 60s and 70s where the Russian embassy in the United States was mostly just KGB agents. Well, also in the 60s and 70s, Hoover was literally just wiretapping Americans. So, I mean, like we, we, it's a little bit different than it was back then. But that, that, That's also a fair point. Apparently, Hoover was in a, was, I think it was trance. 
What? What? <laughs> yeah, like apparently Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover used to cross-dress. Quite enjoyed it. Oh. What? It's his own. Is he, is he convincing? I mean, I don't I know. I don't think there's photos of J. Edgar Hoover. Do you look hot? Probably not. Have you seen pictures of J. Edgar Hoover? J. Edgar oh, Hoover is not an attractive man. Like, in order, to, in, in, I mean, in my humble opinion, in order to look good as someone in essentially femme clothing, you have to look drag. It's drag. Kind of feminine. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Not like, necessarily. Is that, accept, is that socially acceptable to use anymore? I don't know. If, if it is, yeah, it's awesome. it's not, then I guess I'm sorry. I mean, none of the debate people are going to listen to this. But, like... <laughs> Maybe if they got pissed at you and they're like, oh, Amr, he's definitely going to say something crazy in here. Anyways, like, in order to look good in drag, you have to look kind of, sort of, a little bit feminine. So, like, if you're, like, super macho looking and you're, like, I don't know, looking like Randy Savage or something, <laughs> and then you macho. get a new drag, yeah. So so wait so are you saying that female bodybuilders can't be attractive? I mean I don't Pretty find much. female bodybuilders attractive. No. Sure, but it's not that they can't be attractive. Like everybody has their preferences. I get it, but that doesn't mean they can't be attractive. Or they're not. They're not women. Well, no. I'm saying it's a, that's what I'm saying. In my personal opinion, to look good in drag. You have to be kind of a feminine-looking person. He's saying to look good for him is what he's saying. Okay, for you. But I think people should just wear what makes them happy. Well, yeah. I'm I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that if you, you know, like, don't look... If you don't, like, have a perfect, air quotes, beach bod, you shouldn't wear a bikini or what have you. But, like, in order to... I mean, what... A beach, well, it's something that was societally created, and it has very different meanings depending on what's being advertised at the time. How did we get into this? I don't know. We were talking about the, the uh, spying or something like that. Okay, so I think we're done with this topic. So nobody has any other thoughts about uh, Nunez stepping aside of the Susan Rice story? I think Nunez would look great in drag. <laughs> I disagree, right. but okay. We'll end with that. That was that's good. Okay. I mean, the next story: uh, Steve Bannon removed from the National Security Council. Oh, so sad. Uh, okay. I mean, according to Trumpy's people, he was removed because the only reason he was put in there was to keep an eye on Michael Flynn. Well, that's true. So, yeah. so what he said in his press release was he was put in there to deoperationalize whatever that means. I don't think that's a word. Uh, the council after the Obama years, or even more, like he said, even more improbably, keep an eye on former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Sorry. Yeah, okay. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll be careful about which articles I open up. I was freaking stupid. So, anyway, so uh, last Wednesday, it came to light that he was removed from the National Security Council. Um, also the CIA director and the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff, uh, were restored to the national security council. Okay, I think that'll be, found. So I, I think that'll be good for Trump in the long run. Now 
people can stop accusing Trump of getting all of his advice from Steve Bannon if it's the National Security Council. Well, that's good. Personally, I, I'm really, I, I'm really loving this rumor that Trump got rid of Steve Bannon because he's sick of this whole President Steve Bannon um, yeah. meme that's going around. That's that's the rumor that's going around. Yeah. I was gonna say how how much credibility you put in that. A lot. I mean, quite a bit. A lot. Yes. There is okay. like. So Trump is very concerned with image to the extent that there was, uh, it was also leaked that the reason he didn't consider Michael Bolton for his um, uh, ambassador to the UN or Secretary of Defense, I forget what he was considering for, or National Security Advisor. Uh, anyway, the the reason he didn't uh, choose Michael Bolton, which thank God he didn't, was because of Michael Bolton's mustache. Like that was the whole reason. He he didn't think it. He didn't think a man should have a mustache like that. Also, something that I find very interesting is like there was this me- there was this internet website called Trump Puncher, and Trump sued those people. Well, there I mean that was another story that we didn't get to this week, which was uh, the Trump administration was asking Twitter to turn over the identity of uh, one of those uh, Twitter uh, alt eggs. Yeah, no, one of those Twitter alt accounts that are purporting to be people inside the government or the administration. Uh, who are critical of Trump? It was the the Park Service or the Immigration and Customs, I think, is what it was. Um, mm-hmm. So it was like the Alt USIC account, which is supposedly people in the Immigration and Customs division that are critical of Trump, and they post on Twitter, you know, things critical of Trump. And the Trump administration asked for asked Twitter to turn over the identity, IP addresses, and things like that, email addresses. Um, to try to figure out who this was and uh, Twitter sued and then it ended up the administration withdrew it but so yeah he's not a big fan of being criticized or being overshadowed the most I think it's the neocons I mean I don't think there's really much to discuss here no I think there is a lot to discuss I think think because there's two, two points here I think one is uh, there's what was this has largely been seen as a power struggle between Bannon and Jared Kushner, one, and two. Yeah. I think the question of, I think the question is, you're putting more military people back in charge of the Security Council, which on the one hand, um, on the one hand, I think a lot of people see it as being a more stable force than Bannon. On the other hand, certainly a lot of uh, Trump supporters on the on the the, the alt-right, if you will, are not happy with this and I'm because pissed. they didn't want Trump to be interventionist and it seems like, and we'll talk about it when we talk about Syria, the immediate result Seriously? is already that we're being more interventionist. And Seriously? What? Well, you don't get it? Seriously? Oh. Come yeah. on. As far as the power struggle goes already had substantially more responsibility more actual responsibilities than Steve Bannon did he oversaw uh, Trump's businesses he acted as an advisor with regards to military expenditures foreign affairs uh, Trump listened to his son-in-law with regards to potential improvements in 
uh, the healthcare law, which has been worked out successfully for him. And so the removal of uh, Custer seemed to have more power all along than Steve Bannon, or so I think. Well, I think it's I, I, I kind of want to say that it's better that Kushner has power than Bannon has power because I feel as if, he, by relation to Ivanka, because I feel like Ivanka is one of the more sane Trump people because she's like, hey, global warming is real. It's a problem and I want to fix this. She's amazing. She's such a great I love her. Uh, that's that's kind of creepy, Philip. Gross. That's that's <laughs> Tiffany. It's so much better. Who? No, <laughs> we're not playing. We're not playing MFK with the fucking Trump siblings. Oh my god! Oh, I would definitely kill Donald Jr. Fun. and Eric. Not even close. <laughs> not even close. What part of we're not playing MFK I with the Trump the siblings? Does it not? Also, there's like five or six of them. Wouldn't even work logistics wise. Well, I would say then we could make it MFKKK, but I feel like that's a bit too on the nose. <laughs> nice. Okay. Uh, no, but I do think that there is a growing uh, power for Jared Kushner uh, in the administration. And I think... So what you're hearing in the leaks behind the scenes we'll for things like banning, banning called Kushner a liberal <sighs> and a cuck and... Uh, what is it with conservatives and calling people cucks? Well, you know where that comes are. from. No, you know where this comes from. Yes, it comes from okay. the cuckold, which is the bird, which stuff and. No, like, no, no. If I, so, so if, cuckold, uh, cuckold is a, it's a type of pornography, um, which generally is uh, you like seeing your wife have sex with another guy. Now, boring. What the hell? Fucking it. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. Stop clicking links. Stop clicking links. You're literally links, a so. grandpa. I, okay. I, 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 I am. The best, I'm not. No, the best part was like, oh, it's a type of pornography, and then the video starts like, for example. Are we playing porn? <laughs> We're not playing porn. I promise. Uh, we we uh, do have an explicit tag on this podcast, but uh, we won't be playing. Porn. Uh, uh, no. So so. Uh, stop. That's weird. Don't do that. <laughs> Cuckold is a is a type of pornography where it's a a guy likes to see his wife have sex with another man, and typically the porn goes that the guy, the husband, uh, doesn't enjoy it, even though he kind of does enjoy it, uh, and it even so there's a lot of racial undertones to that because the most famous, the most popular form of cuckold porn is uh, involves an African American man usually having sex with a white guy's wife. <laughs> So there's a lot of racial undertones uh, to that, but where this a lot of them are anti, set in antebellum South. Well, so where this specifically comes from, though, and and I didn't find this out too recently, uh, was Bannon. He's a big fan of this book, and uh, a lot of people on the anti-immigration right are a big fan of this, this French novel from the '70s called um, uh, Camp of the Saints, which is essentially about. Um, there's there's a really interesting article on Huffington Huffington Post about it, and uh, or you could just read the Wikipedia page, or just read the book. It's not that long, but the book essentially follows. Um, it's written from people a French point of view of this guy who is opposed to. There's a bunch of Indian immigrants coming from India, eight hundred thousand, and this huge armada, and they're coming to France, and 
Um, they're coming to essentially take over the West. And the liberals are uh, saying, oh, we should welcome these Indian immigrants here. And the conservatives or the anti-immigration people in France in the book are saying that, you know, we should do the responsible thing for French society and we should uh, murder them all. We should execute all these immigrants that are coming here uh, in order to save our society. And uh, basically the term cuck comes from in the book they called liberals culturally cuckolded and that is that they like seeing these immigrants and these other people take over their culture and you know have sex with their women and stuff like that so the book also goes to describe that once the immigrants get there there's a massive uprising of third world immigrants all over the world and they essentially destroy white christian culture um in terms Amen. of like the 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 british I like this book the british queen has is forced to quote unquote forced to marry her uh son or marry her daughter off to a pakistani uh husband uh the mayor of new york has to uh house an african american family in the gracie's mansion uh, which it turns out that one actually came true it just turns out that it's his wife and his son um and then that in Russia, Chinese immigrants overtake Russia and flood, essentially. And they uprise and they just start slaughtering white Christians. Well, that book isn't xenophobic at all. Yeah. So. When, when did this book well, What is xenophobia? Uh, the book came out in 72 or 75, I want to say. But anyway, so that's where they think cuck comes from. It comes from that book. It's very popular among anti-immigrant conservatives, and uh, they talked about liberals were cuckolded, culturally cuckolded. It's also very popular among Brett. I don't use cuck all that often. Yes, you. Yes, you too. <laughs> if I were to take a shot of every every single time you said cuck, I would be in the hospital for liver poisoning. When's the last time I said cuck? Now. two seconds ago <laughs> so oh, so guys. actually i just while we're on this topic because i just want to read exactly what the what the synopsis of the book is it says the plot of the camp of the saints follows a poor indian demagogue named the turd eater because he literally eats shit and the deformed, <laughs> oh, fuck. yeah and the, and the deformed <laughs> apparently psychic his, no that's not cool uh no and the deformed, apparently psychic child who sits on his shoulders. Together they lead an armada of 800,000 impoverished Indians sailing to France. Dithering oh. European politicians, bureaucrats, <laughs> dithering European politicians, bureaucrats, and religious leaders, including a liberal pope from Latin America, debate whether to let the ships land and accept the Indians or do the right thing in the book's vision by recognizing the threat the migrants pose and killing them all. The non-white people of Earth, meanwhile, wait silently for the Indians to reach shore. The landing will be the signal for them to rise up everywhere and overthrow white Western society. The French government eventually gives the order to repel the armada by force, but by then the military has lost the will to fight. Troops battle among themselves as the Indians stream on shore, trampling to death the left-wing radicals who came to welcome them. Poor black and brown people literally overrun Western civilization. Chinese people pour into Russia. The Queen of England is forced to marry her son to a Pakistani woman. The mayor of New York must house an African-American family at Gracie Mansion. Raspail, who's the author of the book, 
his rogue heroes, the defenders of Christian supremacy, attempt to defend their civilization with guns blazing, but are killed in the process. Calgez, who is the main character, is one of those taking up arms against migrants and their culturally, quote, cuckolded white supporters. Just before killing a radical hippie, Calgez compares his own actions to past heroic, sometimes mythical defenses of European Christendom. He hearkens back to famous battles that fit the Clash of Civilizations narrative. The defensive roads against the Ottoman Empire, the fall of Constantinople to the same, and glorifies colonial wars of conquest and the formation of the Ku Klux Klan. Ku Klux Klan. Only white Europeans like Calgaz are portrayed as truly human in the camp of the saints. The Indian Armada brings thousands of wretched creatures whose very bodies arise disgust. And this is a quote from the book. Scraggly branches, brown and black, all bear those fleshless Gandhi arms. Uh, <laughs> fleshless Gandhi arms. Yeah. It sounds, it's, it's, fuck off. It, it sounds a lot like uh, Rosenberg's The Myth of the 20th Century in the narrative that's portrayed in the heroism and humanity bestowed upon the whites specifically, except not... Uh, the Nordic, Nordic Germans. Well, yeah, and so this puts it to, this puts that idea to literal words and that it says the white Christian world is on the brink of destruction, the novel suggests, because these black and brown people are more fertile and more numerous, while the West has lost that necessary belief in its own cultural and racial superiority. As he talks to the hippie he will soon kill, Calgas, who's again the main character, explains how the youth went so wrong. And again, this is a quote from the book. That scorn of a people for other races, the knowledge that one's own is best, the triumphant joy at feeling oneself to be part of humanity's finest, none of that had ever filled these youngsters' adult brains, unquote. Well, that, that, I mean, if he's not entirely wrong as far as the pride goes. I mean, each person, regardless of what race they belong to, racial solidarity is an intrinsic uh, feeling that we have being amongst ourselves in the preservation of uh, culture. We can coexist, however, fundamentally, we each have uh, a desire to preserve what is uh, dear to us and what defines us in the racial sense and our accomplishments and our place in the world. I think that's. I think the liberal argument would be that's an outmoded line of thinking. That in the modern global society, those kinds of barriers don't have to exist. They don't. They don't have to exist. However, they do on a volu- on a voluntary basis. The way communities in which integration is heavily advocated, which were governments and state programs to integrate people, whether it's uh, uh, no one can force housing, but trying to get people to live in the same neighborhoods and integrating schools, etc. While the legal segregation doesn't exist, people still find ways to separate themselves from people who are not in the same racial class, and that's not coincidental. The ra- I mean, the, ra- the, ra- I... the racial sorry. violence. Sorry, the, the five more seconds. The the fact that we have so much racial Chaos in the United States is not coincidental. It is because there are so many races that have their own self-interest at hand. And the conflict is natural due to the desire to preserve those self-interests. Whereas homogeneous homogeneous communities uh, uh, who 
are in solidarity in their racial sense see less of this uh, uh, chaos and violence. Go ahead, well, Amr. But that inherent. Uh, what I was okay. going to say um, is essentially speaking that human beings as a sort are very tribal. Like a quote that I like from Stan Lee is if we didn't have race and we didn't have religion, we would start to discriminate by hair color or age. You know, like people need a reason to, you know, challenge each other and be essentially separated themselves from one another. And the last thing that we need is more of an excuse to do this. We need to try and bridge the gap and try and bridge the divide and try and not see race. Well, and I think, too, the argument that Philip is making is, uh, so he's true, and I think liberals have to. I think liberals have to take a lot of responsibility for this. For example, you know, he talks about people segregating themselves in terms of housing. Uh, some of the most segregated school districts and housing are in liberal havens like New York, because it's true. White liberals, as much as they tend to be liberals, they don't want to live with non-white people, and that sucks, and that's a problem. And um, liberals really need to own up to that, and particularly in places like New York and California. And, um, but beyond that, I think the idea that we can't get past that is, um, I think it's a little bit unfair because I think we've already seen the way in the United States, the way the circle of what qualifies as the tribe has continued to expand. So the tribe used to be white Protestant Christians, right? And then it, even Catholics were kind of seen as suspect among the majority. And then, well, then, okay, now we're Catholics. We have Catholics as well. And then it grew to include uh, Jews, right? Because there was a time when anti-Semitism was rampant and Jews were seen as the others. And then we grew to include Jews in this idea of what is white. And then it was Italians. Italians didn't qualify as white in the early 20th century. Well, now nobody really argues. Italians are considered white. So, like, the idea of what qualifies as the tribe just continues to grow. And at some point, I think the idea that it won't eventually grow to include Latinos, Hispanics, and even African-Americans, I think that should be the goal. And I, Because I think nobody would argue that, or at least I hope nobody would argue, that accepting and being more open to italians and jews and irish and expanding the definition of the majority to include those people was a bad thing and so i don't no think it's a bad thing to also include latinos and hispanics and african-americans they should include everybody on a, on a, on a national level yes acceptance inclusivity and opening up opportunities is and nobody is arguing that it is inherently a bad idea to get people together however when you're, well, anybody can mention how you have an abundance of groups. You have uh, whites, blacks, uh, Latinos, uh, uh, people from far outside the United States, whatever. Each group has its own distinct uh, culture, language, views on life, uh, economic circumstances that affect that group more than a particular other. And those serve as unifying factors that are hard to mix with uh, the different perspectives of a group uh, that may be completely op opposite while coexist while being able to coexist is fine there are certain barrier barriers that fall 
that give exclusivity to each race that make it very difficult to form a very cohesive and understanding community with regards to the entire country. Well, I think I think that greatly simplifies the the diversity of culture and quote unquote white America, right? Like there's this idea that and this is the argument I've always made. People are like, oh, is it okay to be proud of to be a white person? It's like, well, what qualifies as white? You know, there's a huge diversity in experience and in, in quote unquote culture between uh, a white Mormon in Utah compared to a white Cajun uh, in Louisiana compared to a white Italian in New Jersey. I mean, those are incredibly different cultures, different religions in a lot of ways. Uh, Christian, but different interpretations of Christianity. Uh, so the idea of that that it's purely based on race, I just it doesn't really hold water to me. Like I think that I think it's become a, a thing of of convenience to group all these people into white because that's what you need to maintain the majority. I mean, if you took it down to just white evangelical Christian Protestants, right? Like that's only like twenty. That was the original majority. That's only like 25% of the country now. Well, so they, they just found more people to invite into the tribe to maintain the majority. Well, the, the, question, the, the, the concept of being white before we maybe move on from this, I agree that, well, white is a bit of an American construction. And the way people group to group are grouped together there's a potential for not a recognition the diversity between groups. But as far as white people in America, the common consensus has been for to be considered white, your, your ancestry has to be uh, from the countries of uh, Western Europe. Even, even if uh, that cultural connection and what's specific to Europe uh, in this day and age uh, if an individual has deviated due to their new wife in the United States, especially if they're living just very simplistically, that uh, connection as far as the ancestral origins is still there. And so that's, that's a unifying factor. But isn't that in itself a little bit disingenuous? Because, I mean, literally two world wars were fought among the different factions of Europeans. Well, that that, that that wasn't the the war was a case of being ideal. The Nazis believed in ideological incom, incompatibility. They saw that France was becoming, in the in the words of Hitler and Mein Kampf, increasingly negrified. And so that's why he attacked France, and he saw Pol the Poles as just an inferior people. However, if I may, well, that's race. That's not ideology. Then the United States <laughs> fought a war with itself over race, yeah. right? Yeah. Dude, that was oh. about states' rights. Oh, no, it was. No, the sad thing is, growing up in Kentucky, that's literally what I was taught, and like, it was like I was like twenty six when I read like the the actual you know secession documents from the states, and like you read like Texas, and it was like first paragraph, this is about slavery, and it's like, huh, they didn't teach me that in 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 my Kentucky high school. Uh, I don't think they would. 
My favorite thing is still Larry Wilmore's response to Judge Napolitano, which is like, slavery was dying of natural causes. And Larry Wilmore's just like, the South was so dedicated to keeping slavery that Abraham Lincoln didn't die of natural causes. <laughs> yeah, touche. Okay, well, that, that's a kind of a detour from Bannon is uh, out at the NSC, but I think it was a good discussion nonetheless. Um, yes. So let's move on to the, the big topic, and we may not even spend as much time on this, but uh, let's be honest, the big topic right now has to be Syria. So Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it is. It just has to be right now. So, so last... Uh, I don't know. We could talk a bit about Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> uh, I have my own thoughts on Bill O'Reilly. Yeah. We're running out of time. Maybe. Um, so, okay. So last Tuesday, uh, basically it was discovered that... Or maybe it was Monday. That um, basically Syria um, gassed their own people. Um, this is not the first time it's happened. As you recall, this happened in 2013. Uh, we had know that for sure. Wait, what? We had know that for sure. We don't know what for sure. This isn't the first time it's happened? That he gasses in people. Well, conspiracy, theories, conspiracy theories aside, the evidence, strongly, the evidence strongly supports... What evidence? Go through the evidence. The, the planes that they identified, the drones that they pictured... That dropped the chemical weapons and more importantly, then bombed the hospital where the people being treated uh, were uh, Syrian. They were Question, Syrian aircraft. Brad, did you read the article? Which one? The one that talked about Syria. Yeah, there's like a shit ton of articles that talk about Syria. Which one? The Huffington Post one? The fake news one? That's Ian. I only trust Infowars with this kind of stuff, guys. I'm sorry. Well, that's where your conspiracy theories come from. <laughs> I'm not surprised. No! It actually all makes sense. It, like, why Infowars. Why would it make sense for a song? I only trust Infowars my information. That's part of... Okay, that's part of the discussion. But let's just say all the evidence points to uh, Assad, Assad used sarin gas. Turkey okay. has confirmed that it was sarin gas. The so evidence points to it was dropped by Syria. Stop talking. I'm reading the story. We will discuss in a minute. Uh, they dropped the bombs, or the, sorry, gassed the civilians with uh, sarin gas, uh, killed at least 74 people, including 16 women and 23 children, wounded over 350, uh, and then verified, this is verified, Syrian warplanes uh, launched an airstrike on the medical clinics one of the medical clinics where the victims were being treated. Uh, so, as a response, uh, last Friday, or last Thursday evening, um, the United States intentionally bombed a Syrian regime target. Uh, this is the first time the United States has bombed any uh, anyone of the Syrian government or the Syrian official military forces. Um, launched 59 Tomahawk missiles at... Uh, the airport where the planes supposedly took off. Um, they took out some planes and some refueling and some cargo. Uh, notably, they did not actually bomb the um, airfield. So Syria was launching planes from the runway later that day. Um, Four hours after the bombs fell. Yeah. So, I, I mean, so I have to say... Paul, 
You know, I, I think that you're reporting this with some serious bias against the Assad regime because, yeah. you know, what they, what, what they said was that what actually happened is that the rebels had a bunch of gas they were holding on to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when they bombed the crap out of the rebels, the gas just happened to go off. But that's just that was the rebels fault, man. Well, nonetheless, because that is in, that that is a hundred percent completely and utterly feasible. Yeah. Well, okay. And when you say it's a hundred percent proven that Assad did it, that just isn't true. And there's all kinds of people of political interests to accuse Assad. Uh, 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 no, the military-industrial complex. No, so Wait, I think I think this. So, what does uh, that have to do? No, with that anything? is not the military-industrial complex is not liberal. First of all. Second of all, uh, I yeah, think... Yeah, but you should be against it. No, I am. So I'm, I'm against well, There you this. go. That's, I, that's I, an interest that would like a war in Syria, at least like a light war, you know? They well, and so, so this, gets to, this gets to the question, which I don't want to dive into conspiracy war. theories here, but I do think there is... Oh. There, so there is, there is a legitimate question to be... I think the question of why would Assad bomb his... So let's let's assume that the I, I all the evidence points to the Assad regime did this. The question is why? Because <laughs> this is the, let me finish. Let me finish. Because the <laughs> argument that's being made by Alex Jones is uh, why would Not the Assad only regime? Alex Jones, gosh! But the Alex Jones camp. Hashtag Make America Great Again. Whoa. The argument that's being made is um, essentially. Uh, why would Assad choose to gas his own people? He's winning the war, right? Right. With Russian aid, yeah. he has essentially taken command. So the question is, why would he do this at this point, cross this quote-unquote red line to gas his own people? He didn't need to. He was already winning with, you know, quote-unquote conventional weapons. Um, I think that's a good question. I don't necessarily think that doesn't have an answer, though. I think two obvious answers are one, he didn't think that the United States would care, or two, that he's testing. He was testing to see what the United States would care. Because keep in mind, um, again, he did this in 2013. Uh, Obama never struck back, never bombed in retaliation. Now, to the point that I think a lot of Republicans are showing uh, irony and hypocrisy here, he asked for the ability to bomb Syria in response, and Republicans did not give him the ability to bomb Syria in response. And the same Republicans that just in 2013 were saying, uh, I'm skip for example, representative Robert Ederholt. I'm skeptical of taking, uh, you know, bombing Syria. Now he's saying, uh, Oh, I fully support president Trump against Syria. Paul Ryan, same thing. Jason Chaffetz, same thing. Donald Trump himself tweeted in 2013, tweeted numerous times, and said on the campaign trail that we shouldn't get involved in Syria, and of course now he's doing it. So there's a, a tremendous amount of hypocrisy there. Uh, so I think that leads to one of two things. Either one, Assad didn't think that we were going to do anything about it, or two, he was testing to see would they do anything about it. I mean, you're once again, you're basing all of your assumptions off that Assad did it, which isn't like a valid... I mean, no, no, it is no. a valid... I'm, sa- I'm saying those are reasons premise. that I think he did do it. I think the evidence points to the fact that he did it. Yeah, but once again, right. like you said, the first time Assad was proven to do like the chemical attack, that isn't true at all. Okay, well, alrighty then. So, 
I, I don't think we can have any sort of meaningful conversation here if we can't even agree on whether or not Assad... Oh, can... no, come on. Hey, I'd like... I, I, I... Imagine if you're the rebels and you wanted to get, like, another country involved and change the tide of war... Are you seriously or... suggesting that the rebels bombed themselves and bombed a hospital? Civilians, yeah. Of course. The rebels generally uh... don't have planes. I'd like, I'd like to make point out to the record that uh, Paul, you brought up. Why do you, uh, need to, why do you need to drop a keg from a plane to gas people? Why would you assume that? Well, you don't have to, but that's what happened. How do you know? Did someone record like orange kegs falling from the sky that were spraying gas, or did they yes. see planes fly by? First of all, reports reports spray. on the ground. Shut. And this reports is over on, rebel terror. Reports on the ground. You know, have said that yes, I, there was a plane that dropped that, and but more importantly, there's course, video the hospital, the clinic that was bombed afterwards, was clearly bombed by a Syrian plane. What do you mean by clearly bombed by a Syrian plane? They saw a it. They have bombed. videos from the hospital. It was a Syrian plane bombed the clinics I mean, where they were so, being so, Something that I'm confused by is why we're having this as an argument. Because, because it's important. Because certain to, like, people don't believe in facts. Decision. Uh, I'm not even no, talking about facts or not believing in I facts. Don't trust the I'm method. saying that it doesn't matter if Assad bombed it or not. The United States government responded as if Assad did the bombing. Yeah. So even if Assad is a hundred percent and totally innocent, which Paul and I have stated that we're not entirely sure of, then. This bombing has still happened, and it's still a very, what's it called, very violent declaration by Trump, even though he stated that he doesn't, that he doesn't think that we should get involved in Syria. Well, I'd, like to, I'd like to make perfectly clear that back when Obama, oh, I'm glad that there wasn't a high degree of involvement in Syria under the Obama administration. However, I'm very upset with what Trump did now, and I acknowledge the hypocrisy of it. I don't believe we should be involved. However, to answer the previous question about why Assad did this, I think it falls more into a line of testing a country, but also potential. It was the potential for him to maybe want to create an escalation where he knew that the U.S. would respond, and thus uh, Russia would be much closer to Bashar al-Assad in that instance. And what do you mean by testing? I mean, honestly speaking, I don't, I don't think that it has to be testing. But just look at it like this. Like, it, it, it works very well as an example, which is all the civilians who were near the rebels, those are the ones that get bombed. So essentially it's the whole thing of, you're near rebels, you get a, you associate with rebels, then you're going to get gas, and you're going to have to deal with chemicals and all this other shit. If you don't, then Why you're going to be fine. Why just gas them afterwards? Like, could, out, out of just kind of, I want clarification. Could Brett, can you tell us what you think happened then? Um, all right. Well, I mean, the thing is, I don't really know what happened. All I can tell you is, like, the mainstream narrative is bullshit. So, oh, okay, so like what? It's based on assumptions. 
So the assumptions are that Assad was responsible. Yeah. That so Assad, we can't. Yeah. You're saying we can't prove it either way yeah. that he was or he wasn't. No one. No one physically filmed jets flying over and dropping gas. People said they saw that, and they they filmed planes bombing hospitals. Sure, but that's different from filming a plane dropping gas. Okay, so how, what do you feel about uh, our involvement in and Syria then? On top of that, like, people have vested interests here. Like, there's obviously some interest for, like, doing this, which would be starting the conflict or shifting it in favor of the rebels. Like, once again, you said, like, Assad wants to test the United States. What the fuck does that mean? Like, what strategic importance does that have? I mean, Trump and, I mean, sorry, Russia, Putin, Assad, they got everything they wanted with Trump in terms of, like, a non-interventionist guy. And then they just push his buttons like that. It makes no sense. Okay, so you're saying on the flip side would be it would make more sense that the rebels did or to themselves or to the civilians or to themselves. Uh, to themselves? Not to the themselves. Rebels but don't to, care about civilians. To, no or, what about civilians. So you're saying they, they staged it in terms that's of why, saying it was that's Assad. That's why they keep them in the hospital. You know, the rebels, they probably keep a shit ton of kids crammed in the hospital and shoot RPGs whenever, like, a Syrian tank rolls by, and then whenever the tank fires back, it kills like ten kids, and then they like film it and go, "Look at this human rights abuses. We need intervention to save the children of Syria." Like there's so many different ways that they could just use people, and I think they do because they really don't have any morals. I don't think there's any moderate rebels that you can point to that wouldn't like treat civilians like shit. Didn't you argue the flip side then, though? Because we could keep going down this rabbit hole and say, well, it could be the Assad regime saying that the okay, rebels yeah, but are doing you this. Give me like a convincing reason why Assad would test Trump or why he would like push the war like further um, away from his favor. Because once again, he's winning. He doesn't have to change like any strategies. He doesn't have to do anything else. He just needs to keep his tanks rolling and eventually he'll win. Okay, so I, I just want to read the evidence here. So this is from an article on CNN describing survivors of the Assyria right. attack right. describe chemical bombs falling from the sky. Yeah, exactly. So, so let me finish. I... Let me finish. You talked. Survivors of a deadly airstrike in Syria have described chemical bombs being dropped from planes in accounts that directly contradicted the Assad regime's version of a dawn attack uh, that drew condemnation from around the world. Uh, Syria denied that it used chemical weapons. Russia asserted the deaths resulted from a gas release when a regime airstrike hit a quote-unquote terrorist chemical weapons factory from the ground. But survivors being treated in a hospital on the Turkish side of the border told a CNN team they saw chemical bombs drop from the air. The World <sighs> Health Organization said victims bore the signs of exposure to nerve agents, which Turkey has now confirmed. This is uh, side. Turkey has now confirmed with sarin, not chlorine, which is what's been more typically used in <clears throat> The World Health Organization said victims bore the signs of exposure to nerve agents, and Amnesty International said evidence pointed to an air-launched chemical attack. International agencies are investigating the origin of the agents used in the attack. 
Uh, and it goes on to say, um, Dan uh, Kazetta, I guess that's his name, oh, a chemical weapons specialist, told CNN the Russian version of events was highly implausible. He says, quote, nerve agents are the result of a very expensive exotic industrial chemical process. These are not something you just whip up. He's managing director of Strong Point Security, a security consulting firm based in London. He says, quote, it's much more plausible that Assad, who's used nerve agents in the past, is using them again. I mean, look uh, at that there's, then there's Strong quotes. Point Then there's security? quotes from people there. Good Lord. Mazen Youssef, a 13-year-old boy, uh, he talked about his, ex- uh, his experience. He says, quote, at 6.30 in the morning, the plane struck. I ran up on our roof and saw that the strike was in front of my grandfather's house. Mazen told <gasps> CNN. Uh, he ran toward his house and found his grandfather slumped over. He ran outside to call for help. Uh, he says, quote, I got dizzy and then fainted in front of my grandfather's garage. I next found myself here in this hospital. Um, said the boy's grandmother, Aisha Al-Tawali, or Tilawi, 55, said she saw blue and yellow after the plane dropped a chemical-laden bomb. Um, another survivor, Ahmed Rabdel Rahim, 31, Started, uh, stared vacantly from his hospital bed while explaining he was hit with poisonous substances carried by three rockets. Yeah, I mean, you're putting too much faith in, like, people you don't know and have reasons to, like, hate Assad and, like, blame him for this. Like, those kinds of people, they don't know what the fuck is going on when there's bombs going off and, like, there's guns. They probably duck and cover. So... Like, I think you're putting zero faith in people there. That's yeah, the narrative that you want. I I don't feel like this is going anywhere. Yeah, so let's just move on. The The fact of the matter is we bombed them. So the question is, where do we go now? And I think probably something that we mostly agree on is that this probably wasn't the right thing to do. I think from my perspective, the question is, you know, people have argued that, well, this was a targeted strike limited to just say, hey, stop using chemical weapons. My problem is I, I just don't see it ending there. And I, I, what's the strategy, right? And I think that's the problem going forward is what is going to be the strategy going forward? Like, is this the only strike that we're going to do? Um, already, we're getting mixed communications. Uh, Sean Spicer came out today and said that you know, he was asked what would trigger another response from the White House. And he said barrel bombs. Now, he'd had to walk that back because Syria drops barrel bombs every day. So if you say barrel bombs are going to be a reason for us to attack Syria, then we're going to war with Syria. So the White House had to walk that back later and say, well, no, we meant barrel bombs full of chemicals. But that's not really the same thing. So the question is, are we going to get involved? And if we're going to get involved, where does that lead? We need to we need to pick a side first of all because with this strike that happened we we are effectively fighting two sides we bombed a Syrian airfield but at the same time for the past I don't know how many months uh, we've been engaging in airstrikes against rebel factions that there that by itself is a mixed message and so we have to reconsider our strategy as far as who we're supporting in the first place and if it were up to me I would say step out of the conflict altogether or support Assad, let him maintain power, deal with ISIS first. And then if the international community comes to a consensus regarding removing Assad, then that is another battle to fight. The initial battle should be to remove the threat of ISIS from Syria 
and then deal with Assad because the former is the more urgent matter as of now. Wait, which which do you think is more urgent? The eliminating extremist factions from Syria that are currently fighting Assad. Well, and I think this is the problem that I have is, this is the question I think is still remaining is, yeah, I agree. I don't think there's a good side to this. I mean, we've been bombing ISIS mainly for the past several years. Um, And we've been theoretically helping um, anti-Assad separatists and rebel factions. But most of those groups are also religious extremists. They're not ISIS, but they are different versions of Al-Qaeda, Al-Nusra. I mean, there were even literally discussions taking place among you know, in the Obama administration of arming Al-Qaeda factions, separatists, yeah. that were fighting yeah. the Assad regime. It's like, well, there's no win in that. What are you? What is the goal? And, and I don't know how regime change... If that's the path that we're going down against in Syria, the other side of that is either ISIS or religious extremists that are not quite as extreme as ISIS. There's not a winning strategy there. Yeah, the the, the guy who will take power will arguably be. We don't know what how the Syrian population will uh, live under this new government. However, we do know that the People who take over, whether it be ISIS or other uh, extremist factions, they will be meant on many levels worse than Assad, because Assad right now by himself is not a threat to the United States. There is before this attack, the tensions between his government and ours were on a relatively low level because there wasn't a because we were more removed from the conflict and you didn't see a, a uh, series of competing interests. If you have the alternative option, you're going to see a lot of tension, but not just between the U.S. and whoever takes over, but between Russia, between the countries that might be targeted in Western Europe. That's a lot more dangerous than having Assad now uh, picking fights with his own people. Not condoning what he's doing. However, it, an unjust peace is better than a hostile takeover of power in which he is removed. That's just what I think. Yeah, I think, you know, there's an interesting uh, Vice did story on Assad, Syria. It was, I think it was the premiere this season. And look, he's an Orwellian dictator. I mean, if you watch that piece, it's, you know, like it's kind of creepy. The devotion to Assad that exists among, um, among the pro-establishment, if you will, population. But at the end of the day, you know there was a a Syrian MP, you know, member of parliament, who was talking to the vice reporter, and he made a good point that, like, look, uh, the Assad government is mostly secular. Um, right. Like, he's a terrible dictator, but, I mean, this is the argument of Iraq all over again, right? Uh, you know, um, Hussein was a horrible dictator. No one's arguing that. He also used mustard gas, killed Kurds and and, um, and Shia. Um, 
you know, my, well, actually they were the majority there. Um, but at the same time, it was mostly stable and now ISIS is there and we put inside a theoretically democratically elected Shia government. And the first thing he did, Maliki did was started cracking down on Sunnis. And so did we really make things better? Nah, I don't know. Exactly. You're, well, you're, well, you're you're correct in saying that the same logic is being employed, uh, and that even though these people are te- both uh, as Saddam Hussein was terrible for using mustard gas against uh, civilian populations, and Assad using chemical other chemical weapons, they are more or less secular. That is immensely important with regards to their leaning. And the diplomatic ties they remain, they retain not just with the United States, given a level, high level of mutual understanding, but also with the rest of the outside world. Well, and I think that gets to the larger point, which is Syria has from the beginning really been not about ISIS or Syria. It's really been a proxy war with Russia, right? Uh, Russia is, or the Assad regime is is backed by both Russia and Iran and right. there is significant economic interest for Russia and Iran to have a friendly government in Syria uh, there are substantial interests for the United States to have an unfriendly regime in Syria so I, I want to point to um, a, a podcast and Israel well Syria is next to Israel so yeah yes Israel also has a residential but from an economic standpoint, a lot of this started, by the way, there was a pipeline, an oil pipeline being built across Syria, and there were two different uh, versions, and one of them would connect Russia to the Mediterranean, and the other side would not. And Americans favored the one that didn't connect Russia, because we have sanctions on Russia. Russia favored the one that did connect Russia to the Mediterranean to help them get around sanctions. And so essentially what we're doing in there is a proxy war with Russia. So there's a really uh, good podcast. Um, there's a podcast called Congressional Dish. It's run by a woman named um, Jennifer Briney. Uh, you can find it at congressionaldish.com. And she did episode 108. Now, this was in 2015. Uh, so this was a long time before any of this stuff happened. And it's called uh, Regime Change. And she has lots of quotes from House and Senate discussions of people before... ISIS even existed saying that the goal was regime change and stuff like that. So I just want to be clear that what's happening in Syria is really a proxy war with Russia and, and has been from the beginning. And um, we can't lose sight of that. And I think there's reasons to be deeply skeptical of, of the, this is, goes back to the Bannon thing of, I, I think Bannon is loose cannon. <laughs> and I don't like him being on the national security council. But I'm also not a huge fan of putting a bunch of military generals on the National Security Council oh, that you want regime Bannon. change. No, I don't love Bannon. I want normal people like Susan <laughs> Rice on the National You're Security gonna Council. You're going to have to settle with what you can. Well, that's because we elected fucking Donald Trump. But nonetheless, um, I do think there should be cause for concern. And I'm very disappointed in Democrats who are supporting Trump in this bombing of Syria. Uh, because I, I, it's the military industrial complex and they're, they want to wage a war there for reasons that go beyond humanitarianism, right? If this were about humanitarianism, if we cared about, as Donald Trump says, beautiful babies dying, 
we would be military intervening in the Somal in South Sudan right now, where there's a genocide happening. We would be militarily intervening in just tons of places all over the world, where there's the Philippines, where they're just executing uh, suspected drug users in the streets, and we're not. Why? Because they don't have a pipeline next to Russia that gives Russia a way around, you know, sanctions. And so I, I will agree with Brett in this way. Be careful of the narrative of going to war with Syria. Sure. Marco. Do you have I'm more opinion? curious. Of, yeah. I mean, like you said, it's a complex issue. So I really don't have an opinion of what we should do. I'm more curious about what, what's next. Because uh, I feel like all the talk was not even about what we're doing with Syria, uh, but what we're, what's going to happen with us in Russia, you know? Uh, yeah. Do we do, do, are we setting a, like, hey, another red line, right? And if we, if they cross it again, we attack again, and the, you know, I think it was, I don't know, it was one of the articles you posted, but it was uh, the communication line between the Pentagon and uh, the Kremlin, is that yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, they just cut it off, yep. not talking. That's, yep. that's kind of scary. Yes, probably. You know? Yeah, like, up uh, until, up think... and up, yeah, well, just to further expand, up until this point, um, and it was really last year, Russia and the United States were, uh, they had created a collaboration to uh, discuss airstrikes so that they didn't run into each other accidentally. And the Kremlin has cut that off in the wake of this uh, missile attack. So. Yeah, so, I mean... I don't know how close we are getting to a, I don't know, I to a, a big war, you know. Like, it could be that we back down. It was just a show of muscle, you know. Like, hey, we could do this because we can, but uh, I too many, too many actors in play. You know, that Assad shot can. down most of the tomahawks. I don't think Russia would necessarily want to get involved in a war with the United States. Yeah. Over due to escalations in Syria. Because, well, th- th- think about the long term implicate. One, I think Putin is rational enough uh, to consider that he has problems at home in need of dealing with, such as uh, a depreciation of the ruble and sanctions and just trying to further modernize his economy. And the long term implicate. The long-term issue for both countries is the possibility of nuclear war because that's always the uh, most deadly possibility. And so in the long run, while there may be intention, nobody, I think both nations are too rational to go to full-out war just for the sake of uh, allowing for the most number of lives to be saved. Well, but to your first point, to your first point, though, on the economy, I think the problem is he sees Syria as being central to fixing his economic problems. Because, again, Syria is stuck in between uh, Russia and the Mediterranean, right? Syria has immense geographic uh, importance in the Gulf. You know, it's, it's bordered by Iran and and. Israel to the north and Russia to the east and the Mediterranean to the or 
Yeah, and the Mediterranean to the west. So I think the reason Putin has such a vested interest in Syria is because Syria would be a great way for him to get around the American sanctions and to get stuff out of uh, the country uh, to the Mediterranean. So. Then let Assad help Putin out if it means Putin backs off uh, under certain conditions. I think that's a good starting point in establishing peace. Well, but then Putin does have goals larger. I mean, the point of fixing the economy is to maintain his power. The sanctions were designed to make to wreck the economy to make Putin lose popularity. You know, because Putin's goal before we put the sanctions on, let's keep in mind, the economy was doing mostly okay, and he went and invaded right. Crimea. So, well, I mean, in, he has Crimea, desires to expand the former Soviet bloc. Maybe so, but Crimea, 85% of the citizens voted to join Russia, and so... That was him essentially gaining people who would have been his supporters even with even without an annexation. And as far as you mentioned how the sanctions were intended to cripple his economy and lower his popularity, it's not our job to lower somebody's popularity by destroying what they arguably did. Well, if Putin is popular among the Russian people, as believe it or not, he is even among millennials who are opening up to the likelihood not the likelihood but the reality of corruption and his ties to the kgb then they should have the right to maintain that popularity and make their economy remain relatively strong under whatever monetary and fiscal uh steps Putin takes domestically. Well, but the flip side of that is you have allies, particularly NATO allies like Estonia and Lithuania who are very concerned about Russian tanks rolling in and annexing them. And why would, why would they did uh, Crimea? Why would Russia go in, go into the Baltic states? What could they offer them that Russia doesn't already have? Well, because Putin has been very clear that he wants to rebuild the former Soviet bloc. He, he wants to be a superpower. He wants he Russia already, to be seen as the, the secondary superpower to the United States. And not secondary, already, but like parallel. They're equal. Well, he, he already is a superpower. And to say that he, would, he wants to rebuild the Soviet Union is problematic because he knows that the entire world is against him. And that he will lose in that battle. Russia does not have the economic nor military strength to fight off the uh, armies of the United States if it comes necessary to f- combine forces of NATO, anybody from Western Europe, the armies of the Baltic states. Uh, that is a battle he is doomed to lose. All he can do is maintain the status of the Russian Federation and its hopeful economic growth and thus uh, its place in the entire world. The possibility of a Soviet Union being rebuilt is uh, unlikely, I think. Well, but at the same time, I don't think you can discredit the fact that um, I think what he's banking on is less that. I mean, number one, he has a larger nuclear uh, war weapon arsenal than the United States. Right. Um, Absolutely. So he does have, at least from a nuclear standpoint, 
the arsenal to be able to compete with us. But traditional weapons, you're right. If we didn't go nuclear, yes, he's clearly outgunned by the United States and NATO as a whole. Uh, but I think what he's banking on is less that he would be outgunned, but more that Americans wouldn't support um, a war with not just Russia, but Iran. And Russia and Iran together, and theoretically, even potentially China, you know, there's a possibility they could go that way. That presents that presents a very formidable opponent that Americans might not be too interested in taking on. I wouldn't be interested in taking that on. I no, 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 sir. Uh, what do you guys? Uh, what do you guys make of uh, or how this uh, the Syrian attack? Uh, how it? How to put it? How it affects like the. Trump Russia Association narrative. Right, that was. I mean, question. Something that I definitely want to talk about is, I really hope we don't go to war in Syria because the last thing we need is another quagmire in the Middle East. Well, that's what that would be. Especially, it's just like every single time the U.S. sticks its nose into Asia, things just kind of go tits up well but here's the thing and this is the thing that i've struggled with i i feel like there's a part of and and i want to really get back to marco's question too but to to answer this point i feel like a part of there's a a certain part of i think you see it increasingly among the alt-right but certainly it's been consistently there among the uh pacifist progressive left of complete non-interventionist and i think there's two arguments to that. I don't like war. I'm a liberal and I'm a progressive and I don't like war. And I don't like seeing anybody die. And I despise the way that the, the government, in both sides, through administrations for as long as I've been alive and beyond, um, have intervened selectively to serve a self-interest rather than actually being humanitarian. Right. But they're also a thing that I've struggled with is the number of deaths of people dying every year due to war has continually decreased since World War II. And is there an argument to be made that America's interventionism has led to that? It's easy to look at the things we've done and say 100,000 people died in Iraq, civilians died in Iraq due to the American invasion there. It's much harder, it's, it's much harder to look at it and say how many people survived how many people didn't die due to american interventions in iraq the first time or american intervention in kosovo or american intervention in yugoslavia and serbia and i mean how, I have... and i think there you cannot ignore the effect that the syrian civil war is having on europe and turkey in terms of the migrant crisis it is proving to be incredibly destabilizing for reasons i don't agree with I think the demagoguery we've discussed is unwarranted, but it exists nonetheless, and that doesn't make the peril that it's putting certain European countries in the way that's straining the democracies. Is it is if a war in Syria would alleviate the migrant crisis? Is that a useful goal in order to protect European liberal democracy? 
And I don't know that that's a question that I can answer. That's a question I struggle with all the time. It's easy to say be non-interventionist and don't kill the civilians in another war. It's a lot harder to calculate the costs of, you know, far right uh, parties and 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 just the economic strains of of 11 million immigrants, refugees fleeing Syria into Europe. That is definitely a important consideration. If there was some way to halt the mic, there was some way to halt the migrant crisis, or at least to lessen the extent to which it's affected Europe, and to also maintain a relatively sustainable level of peace in Syria, I would be all for some form of intervention. Because you see, you mentioned how. Not all intervention is bad. I mean, look, here's a simple example. World War Two. No one is argue. It's hard to argue that stopping an entire continent from being rolled under a swastika is a bad idea. America saved God knows how many people from being uh, summarily executed by the Nazis. Right. Yeah, but it's... Well, sorry. Go ahead. But, well, via their, via their landings. However, taking the conflict now is where the issue comes. And, under, and finding a true necessity and positive effect that your involvement could have. Uh, far, too many, far too many interventions in the last decade and a half have been, unfortunately with little for us to gain and for little and little for the countries that were affected themselves to gain. Well, and I think there's two points to that. Number one is there was a tremendous amount, like Americans did not want to get involved in World War II. Like until Pearl Harbor, you know, and that's the reason the conspiracy theories around did FDR let Pearl Harbor happen or did he false flag it in order to get the United States pulled into the war. That's why those exist, because there wasn't American support for U.S. intervention in World War II. So that's something we have to consider. And I think the other part of it is, um, like, I, actually, I kind of lost my train of thought on the other part of it. Um, <gasps> um, something so. that I, I, I'd like to kind of jump off of that point, which is I actually, my issues with the Iraq war is how badly it was handled, but not that we yeah, went there. Like, yeah. the, we disbanded the Iraqi army. We just assumed we'd be treated as liberators. We sent in a bunch of white people who didn't know a thing about the locals, who didn't know a thing about, what's it called, the, the locale, and it was just essentially another Vietnam War. And what happened yeah. in Vietnam was we didn't know jack shit about Vietnam, but we decided that we could go ahead and fix things. Yeah, that was actually going to be my second point. The reason World War II had a quote-unquote happy ending, and and it, I think there's num numerous reasons, but I think one of the biggest reasons is uh, the programs that we did to rebuild Germany and Japan in, in the wake of World War II. And, and and also Italy and so forth. Uh, you know, we rebuilt the Axis after World War II. I think that's a big part of it. The other part of it was 
those countries were already modern industrialized countries before the war started. So after the war, it was it was easier to spend money to bring them back up to the level of you're part of the industrialized modern world. I think what you struggle with when with Iraq and certainly even more to an extent with Afghanistan, and I think you would also see in Syria is these aren't heavily industrialized. These aren't countries that had um, that have experience with uh, high economic prosperity and um, liberal democracy. And so there's no... I'm not sure I agree with that. Okay. A lot of these countries and what have you had have had liberal democracies. Afghanistan had a democracy until well, we true. decided yeah. to fund a bunch of extremists and the Mujahideen. But that was and, like, 30 years these people. ago. But the, the, the point majority that of I'm Afghanis making, today haven't experienced liberal democracy in their life. Well, yes, I, I will concede to you on that point. Right. But I feel like a majority of the, of the issues that are issues in the Middle East, like in Syria, I, I just did this for a debate fact sheet that I was working on, which is there was a CIA coup in 49. Like one of the first things that the CIA did was instigate a coup. Like the minute it came in, like there was an attempted coup in Iraq in 1996. Like we were the one who got Saddam Hussein in power in the first place. Or Iran, by the way, for that matter. Oh, they yeah. had a pretty liberal democracy before we decided to overthrow him. Because we didn't like that he was nationalizing oil. Yeah, we, we yep. got rid of Mossadegh. Yep. And replaced him with a Shah. And yep. like, then they replaced, then Mossadegh died in jail. So they replaced him with freaking Ayatollah Khomeini. Yep. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think this is the problem post-World War II. We haven't been able to recreate the part that I think made post-World War II work was, was spending the money to rebuild and and join bring those countries into um, I, I i don't agree society. with you All i right, think guys, the I have to go. <laughs> that we that grand. we okay sorry I, all right what i wanted to just finish the point was the reason that world war ii when we lost was because when we beat the nazis the nazis surrendered like when you know like hitler shot himself and I think it was Goebbels shot himself. And then, like, when the armistice was signed, that was it. The Nazis respected that. But when the Iraqi army stood down, there were a bunch of people who refused to accept that, and they still kept fighting. No, but, I mean, I, my point was what not what ended the war. My point was what made the, the aftermath palatable. Because you can just look at Germany from World War One and World War Two. After World War One, we heavily punished Germany, and that led to the rise of the Nazis, right? We learned from that, and we helped rebuild in Germany after World War II so that we didn't put them under the same kind of economic strain that followed World War One. And I feel like we don't have the political muster to do that again. We certainly didn't in Iraq. We certainly didn't in Afghanistan, and we won't in Syria. Our, go our MO now is not to intervene when necessary and then rebuild as an ally our mo these days is more just bomb and what happens happens 
There's no exit strategy, so to speak. Well, I'm glad we're all opposed to intervening in Syria. And I hope that continues. Unless uh, it's proven that the gas tax happened. No, I, even if they happened, I probably wouldn't go in. Yeah, no. All right. Well, uh, good good talk. All right, you have out. to go. Yeah, uh, I have to. Yeah, I, I you brought to get... fact sheets. I have two hours to turn in two fact sheets. Yeah, that's fine. I got this. That's fine. Go ahead. Have fun. I forgot about that. All right. I, I think we're pretty close to wrapping up anyway. Well, thank you all for listening to the Fairly Political Podcast. We record every Monday, and we should be posting every Wednesday. I'm a small town pizza lawyer signing out. I'm Philip. I'm Philip Moore, representative of the Kremlin. Sorry, I mean the American people, and of all my colleagues and the loyal opposition. Today, to you, I say goodbye and Auf Wiedersehen. Did you? Okay. And uh, yeah, bye.